This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Welcome to episode 29 of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase, where I invite bloggers, filmmakers and fellow film junkies to help me work for the 1001 film introduction to Cool and Obscure Cinema, which is the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange list. As always, I'm your host, Edward Jones, of From the Depths DVD Hell and Channel Superhero, and tonight's episode comes with a message of warning not to listen if you're easily offended or of a sensitive nature. So instead of writing angry emails, why not check out one of the other episodes from the archive instead? For those who choose to ignore this warning, we will on this episode be looking at the highly controversial 1971 Ken Russell film The Devils, as well as David Finch's breakout thriller Seven. But my guest tonight is not only a regular contributor to Action at Gogo, but has also built up an impressive body of podcasting work as both a co-host on the wire-centered All the Pieces Matter, as well as for his own show, The Debatable Podcast. It of course gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show Greg Saradachi. Very close. Very close. Very close. I will take it. Thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> we will have uh, like two minutes for that one. I know, I know. Down. And I, can I say, best intro I've ever gotten. I'm going to oh, say it right you. now. That was amazing. That felt, I felt like I'm on, on, uh, on BBC News right now. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> your accent, your accent helps. Uh, yeah, having a British accent just makes everything seem a lot more classier. It, it does, it does. So. Especially if you're doing a movie that takes place in France, uh, having British accents is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but um, thank you for having me here, man. Yeah, I, it's been. We were talking before we started. Uh, it's been it's been uh, three or four months. We we've been talking about this, and uh, I'm excited to finally finally do it with you. Yes, it's again. It was when we obviously sent out the original email. The certain yep. guests that we have on the show, and when you send the email, it's sort of like. They're never in a million years going to want to be part of this. They're not going to come and slam it with us on this. Show. <laughs> um, and it's always nice when they, obviously people like yourself do choose to come and slam it with us. So thank you very much for uh, taking time uh, out of out of it. I mean, it took us three months to get you here, but you're finally. now finally here. And we got a couple finally. of certainly interesting films to discuss <laughs> in this first indeed. appearance. So. We do indeed. I I, 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 uh, I definitely went through the, the pain and torture of looking at your long letterbox list. Not the pain and torture of saying it's too long. The pain and torture of there are so many goddamn good movies on there. It's, I think this is the thing, obviously, when we were creating the list. Um, and this is the advantage of obviously having so many different bloggers and different tastes sort of contribute to it. Is that First of all, the list covers such a long range of different genres and provides that sort of introduction but at the same time there's enough sort of curiosities and oddities to sort of keep your interest so i would hope there'd be something on there for everyone and yeah. so far as we've obviously been doing the shows it certainly has been the case we've not 
yet we've yet to have an episode where I've had two guests want to do the same movie. So uh, it's a, it's always interesting to see what people pick and the fact it's that you're going to the Devils. Yeah, yeah, the Devils definitely, man. The Devils is one of my. I, I think we presented uh, you, you presented it to me, and I was like, I need to do two movies, and it wasn't that we chose. Like, I chose the same theme, but weirdly, they do have a similar theme. And, um, yeah, uh, The Devils and Seven are the ones I want to talk about today. And one, The Devils, is a new obsession, a fairly new obsession, and Seven is an old obsession from back in my teenage days. It, For some reason or another, it's suddenly become the film that's in vogue at the moment, it seems, in the cult it is. So cinema it's, universe. Uh-huh. It's um, weird. It's weird that it's on all of the lips of a lot of um, cinephiles that we talk to in, in a similar community. Yeah, You're right. It's it's weird because we obviously, this sort of recent chain that we had, it started off really with the guest, where everyone just wanted to discuss that. Mm-hmm. And then we went on to doing the Sentinel. And now it's obviously just moved on to the Devils, uh, yeah. which is, again, it was such a weird film. Yes, it's obviously got its controversial nature, but at the same time, it's not the sort of film that really jumps out as having that sort of instant cult following that right. the previous two films we mentioned would have. Right. Um, but it has so many things like on its side, I mean, least of which is Oliver Reed, but it's seventiesness. It, the balls it has is such uh it's such a, um, a well-made movie. It's got concept and stake to stakes to it. Um, it's such a very, very good movie. And it, I think that's what makes it, you know, once people find out that there's this, for the most part, undiscovered gem that also has a controversy behind it, it's off to the races. Yeah. Before we obviously get into our, the two films you've selected this year, I just want to obviously discuss about your work, because uh, obviously the show you're both best known for, really, is the Debatable Podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for those of my listeners not familiar with the show, what's it? how would you best sort of describe it? Because... Whereas with podcasts, you would normally have like a theme show, so something like mm-hmm. like this show where we look at cool movies, or you have like the broadcast, which is just friends sort of having a roundtable discussion. But sure. with your show, it it's different in a way because you just invite people on to talk about their interests in a way. Yeah, absolutely. It's start- I think I think my interests really run the gamut. I'm not. I'm. I, I would guess that I, I'm probably a cinephile first before anything, but I also have interests in music and in, and uh, writing and video games. And if you're going to be a, a person, a Renaissance man, or try to aspire to be rena- Renaissance and in just your interests, I was trying to find a, a, a theme of a show that wasn't going to feel restrictive because my favorite part of podcasting, the idea, is is the interview, but like mainly the conversation. Yeah. So when I talk to people, I want to talk to people about what they are obsessed with, what they are passionate about. And of course, you know, we've had a couple episodes that are off book and we kind of like that, that are kind of more socially oriented a little more social commentary or a little more politically oriented but for the most part it's about people's obsessions and passions within media and when we do have people that are in the industry whether they're in the film industry tv industry uh critics yeah that's when we kind of like dig into kind of a more mark Marin wtf interview structure 
But as the time has go- gone on, um, I feel like it started with WTF. That was the kind of the, the idea of the, the one-on-one interview. We've had a couple that have been kind of roundtable discussions. But as it's gone on, I think we've gotten more to a point of conversation that feels a little less um, – there's, there's themes and there's – there's uh, motivation, but I think it feels less like there's a mission right off the bat. Like we're going to talk about this, that, and the other thing, in and out. I feel like it's it's a lot more laid back, kind of like your program is as we go as we go on, as we as we get more refined. I mean, certainly, as you said, right? It's a variety of subjects you cover. It's right. funny you should mention, obviously, the WTF uh, podcast because whenever I'm trying to think of comparison, that's always the show I go to. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly, it's it's the joy of conversation, and Absolutely. again, this is what I love about podcasting is that it's not this seven minute, eight minute block that right. you have for a person. You have maybe an hour and a half with someone. You can really sort of get to know that person and Absolutely. find out what makes them tick. And I mean, Absolutely. It's, and early on, what I was doing was interviewing a lot of people that I, I – I still do this, but I mean the people that I really admired when I started the podcast, when I was thinking about it, I was like, well, we're film professors I had in film school. I was like, I want to learn more about them because I only knew them as my teachers. So it's interesting to, to do a show that's like WTF where you're doing an interview, but you're not doing it of a celebrity or someone who has content out there or that the audience knows. So the audience, uh, the listener, is is finding out as much about this person who is you know, a relatively normal uh, human being without maybe much of a, even a, a, social, a social network uh, uh, footprint. You know, They might not even know him or her from Adam. They're probably some some guy that I know from Maryland. So, you know, you or anybody else, you know, your your frame of reference is really just our conversation. So bringing that WTF type interview to uh, a regular person, a regular normal person and finding out that they really do have as many experiences and, and stories to tell and passions that make for compelling listening is is the thing that that surprised me early on. I was like, who the hell is going to want to listen to me and my friend Dan or my friend Fernando talk about shit? But then it turns out to be something that I I, I feel at least is is listenable, you know? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can never really judge what someone else is going to find interesting. I mean, it raises mm-hmm. more audience to audience. And I think certainly when I started the show, it was always going to be that the guest um, and their body work is just as important as films being discussed because you never really get the chance, certainly when you're writing, to really go into your own sort of personal taste, your sort right. of history with mm-hmm. the genres you enjoy. And I always find it really fascinating to find out where people found their start, the movies that inspired right. them, and certainly why they choose to look at the films that they do. So. Right. Certainly and the that, podcast format gives you the freedom to do this. And that's the most important part to me is like when I – the writers that I enjoy reading um, bring an autobiographical bent to their writing, whether it's a book or an article, uh, piece of criticism or whatever. When they approach it from the way that they discovered that thing or the way uh, they experienced that thing, um, that's what's interesting to me. And that's kind of – you know that's the prism that you um, – that I hope a listener takes from Debatable and, and from All the Pieces Matter, that um, both of those shows kind of are the autobiogra- autobiographical experience with whether it's The Wire 
or it's learning about someone on Debatable or learning about a topic that we cover on Debatable. It's it's what I always bring up. This happened to me in my life. Uh, we recently did a series called My Favorite Films on Debatable, and, and that was completely autobiographical. It was like, let me put you put this in context for you. This We're going to watch this movie and talk about it, but this is why it's one of my favorite films because at this point in my life, I was experiencing this, and I saw it through these uh, goggles, and that's how I see this movie and everything. And that that's what I always want to bring to the table with the, the podcasting uh, shows that I do. And obviously with the show, having the scope, it, it does. I mean, just obviously looking for your back catalog, I mean, you've had Billy Corbin, who recently yep. gave us Dogfight. Um, as well as Cocaine Cowboys. Uh, you even had the grandmaster of bad cinema, Yui Bowl. I did indeed. Uh, found time to have a <laughs> phone call with yourself before he basically went and insulted anyone on Kickstarter. So Man, that, that, kind, of, that kind of worked out, didn't it? No, it was like, uh, I think, yeah, it was like the next week after we, uh, we unveiled that episode is when the, uh, was it his Kickstarter kind of uh, went, went belly up and he <laughs> had his meltdown, yeah. <laughs> it was... It was advantageous. The thing that I remember from that particular moment is not so much his his anger, but the fact that the 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 people that were calling him all these names and kind of like fed up with him uh, started replying to the first tweet that he had left on his account and the first tweet that he had was a retweet of my show so they started <laughs> responding to him and i and all this like shit that they were talking all this crap that they were talking towards him i was like along for the ride <laughs> it was pretty interesting so like you log on your twitter account and it's like you have one thousand messages and you exactly. think, well, a bit more than usual <laughs> exactly uh, again it's what I love about the show is you can have someone like uh, Billy Corbin on, and you can have someone such as Christy Makepeace, mm-hmm. um, a friend of the show, and obviously a friend of yourself as well. And again, she was just talking about showing her interest in porn, which, again, it wouldn't think it's an interesting subject on the surface. You wouldn't think there's much right. to discuss, but the discussion that you have was just absolutely fascinating. Again, this is just what I love about the show is that you can take a surprising subject flip it into something that will provide a more interesting conversation than you would have thought. Absolutely. And, and it falls into something that... See, I, I love Christine because she doesn't mince words. And she what she loves, she loves. She doesn't make any fucking, like, um, uh, excuses for... Uh, or what call things anything like guilty pleasures. Like, what she loves, she loves. And um, she's really passionate about that. And I found out about that around a time and I'm still in this kind of phase where I'm really trying to kind of open up that conversation more. Um, we had Misty Stone, who's a porn actress on debatable and it happened to be one of the, the most streamed and most downloaded shows. And I thought, okay, well that makes sense. She's a porn star and people, you know, whether they follow her online or not, they probably know her work. If not, they looked up her work and they <laughs> want to hear what that conversation is about. It's, it's not surprising. But the content of what we talked about, Misty Stone and I, is really important, I think. It, it was about her uh, experience, but also her experience as being a black woman in, uh, in porn. And then fast forward to Christine, who's another woman, and her perspective on porn is even more progressive, I feel, even more open-minded. And... Um, I think that that's the discussion. I think that's the next I think that's the next phase of discussion where people 
can have that experience talk about their maybe not you know their 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 passion and obsession with with pornography is is human it's absolutely yeah. ingrained in us as human beings but um so so sex in general but it's still it, it's it's hilarious as open minded as we are especially maybe i'm i'm in a a little bubble maybe i'm in this little you know vacuum of of, of uh, us us friends online but uh it's so, so surprising how much of a taboo it still is um i can't really kind of post anything about porn on some sites that I um, that I uh, uh, post debatable to I can't really post it on Facebook because of you know family and yeah. family friends that are on there so it's still kind of it's really taboo especially with having family members who are very you know Christian or very religious I think it also falls down to uh, as John Watts says you just as you get older you just learn to pick your battles Right. You know that obviously posting about porn on Facebook isn't going to go down, down well with certain family members, so you just don't do it. But Very true. I feel that. But I, but I wish that we got to that point. I hope yeah. that we get to that point where we can have a frank discussion about it, where it's not just, you know, uh, Dr. Ruth. You know, it's not just people, you know, ooh, I'm going to be able to talk about sex. You know, it's so special. <laughs> you know, we should be able to talk about pornography in the same way that we talk about you know looper or whatever type of cinema we it's like you know it should be something like that i think it also falls down heavily to the subjects you choose to interview view on it certainly uh -huh. there are certain key interview subjects that you can pick that would provide that sort of insight you need people such as james dean uh mm -hmm. if you wanted right. to like look at the godfather of british gonzo porn such as ben dover who'd uh -huh. frequently provided fascinating insights on sort of like the early history of the pornography industry really from sort of the early 80s going onwards uh right. he's frequently proven to be a fascinating subject and Absolutely. unfortunately whenever you start mentioning porn then they just want to focus on the so-called in and outs of pornography yes. rather than anything else to do with the subject so sure i'm i'm as interested in the industry as i am about kind of the the passion of of what that type of um cinema or that type of media brings to the table as as human beings it's like you're you're absolutely right like i wish that we could talk to people like that and just have the the openness about it and and talk about the things below the surface but people only want to talk about the surface they yeah. want to talk about um the the gonzo stuff or just the 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 sex scenes and uh, of course the first thing that goes with that is ad support <laughs> you're not going to get ad support for anything that you try to even if you try to do it from an academic standpoint what you really notice what you really notice, and Christine has pointed this out on several occasions, and she continues to be this beacon of, uh, of blowing bullshit out of the water. It's the people that uh, slut shame. The people that we do, like, um, uh, was it Hot Girls Wanted that Rashida Jones um, a documentary <sighs> produced? That's, it, uh, it, yeah, that documentary was just, just a mess from start to finish. Exactly. The only way that you can approach porn and it will be acceptable by the mainstream is if you approach it, A, from an academic standpoint, and B, you approach it from a negative standpoint, that the people in this industry are being preyed upon, that they are, you know, they, they should be ashamed of what they did, they're, uh, they're, what they're doing to their families, to their, um, to their significant others, whatever. Yeah, that's, that's the, still the approach to pornography. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, before we obviously just 
turn this whole podcast. Let's just do this. Let's just do this. No, let's just do this. We're just hanging out and talk about porn. Um, I mean, do, just to sort of a final sort of note. I mean, I have obviously put out onto the Twitter feed. I sent out an open invitation to James Dean to come on, not just to talk about porn, but obviously to discuss the canyons as well, which sure. is really sort of his breakout role. Absolutely. Um, and as yet, he's yet to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, just so it's out there. If James Dean, if you want to come on, or anyone within the industry wants to come on and discuss it, the door is always open. We are providing an open platform. Um, Greg, I'm sure you'll come back and discuss it with us if we can Absolutely. get some on. Absolutely. So and the thing, the thing is, more power to you because I've had a lot of uh, bad luck trying to get people within that industry on 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 the podcast. So I hope that he does come through because he seems like such an open minded. Well spoken, well thought out, dude. As um, as Nellis described it on this podcast, he's the nice Jewish boy of porn. <laughs> exactly. Um, obviously, you were saying about Hot Girls Wanted. Did you see the uh, Sh- Sean Dunn uh, documentary Cam Girls? No, I didn't. Uh, no, I don't think I did. Okay, if you've not seen Cam Girls, um, I would highly recommend watching it because here is actually finally a documentary which looks at the sex industry from a negative standpoint as uh-huh. in, when i say negative i mean it's not good or bad it's just observational right um and there's a fascinating sequence in it where he's obviously meets the different cam girls and it's a wide variety of girls that he that he interviews mm-hmm. and basically takes the role as the stand-on observer and lets the girls tell their stories and it's about the three quarters in that he actually flips the camera and meets the guys who watch cam girls Nice. And it's another fascinating documentary to his already impressive body of work. I mean, he did one of my favorite uh, documentary shorts, American Juggalo. Mm-hmm. Yes. To uh, Gathering of the Juggalos. Mm-hmm. And I love again, that. just took that sound off his shell, just let the Juggalos speak for themselves. And instead of going in and going, oh, the Juggalos, they're like this gang, <laughs> they're going to steal your right. car and that. And right. I think certainly from documentary filmmakers, Sean Dunn is probably one of the most underappreciated voices in documentary filmmaking at the moment. Oh, yeah. um, and someone whose work is being done independently and certainly worth your time. But mm-hmm. as a final sort of note to Hot Girls Wanted, I just recommend that everyone ignore Hot Girls Wanted to check out as, Girls. As much as you can, yes, absolutely. Um, I'll sign on. <clears throat> but uh, obviously moving from one interest to another, I mean, your other d- podcast is about The Wire, called All the Pieces Matter. What is it about The Wire that sort of holds your interest as much? Obviously, The Wire was sort of that second generation of shows after like the likes of Sopranos, where yeah. it sort of came out and it became the must-see viewing. But at the same time, it was one of those shows that broke through, like Family Guy, on through DVD rather than its initial yeah. showing. Absolutely. Um, I still remember Word Magazine referring to it as the greatest show never seen. Yeah, I agree. But um, what is it about The Wire that sort of held your interest so much that you went to your podcast about it it's um it's literary it's smart and uh at least in fernando's in my opinion fernando is my uh co-host and my friend i think it's the best tv show that's ever been put on tv um it's uh there's something to be said for what it what it um brings to the table on the surface at least i think what's difficult for people to get past 
it's probably many variables, but let's say I would say the main one early on was it looks like a run of the mill detective procedural or cop procedural, you know, and we uh, especially in the U.S., we had just gotten through with our, our law and orders, our homicides, also uh, a David Simon joint, at least early on, um, and, uh, and NYPD Blue. It's just a, it's a mainstay of, of television is the police procedural. And I think that especially early on that first season, um, that's where people were not really impressed. They weren't like, OK, uh, on top of that. The two other aspects I think that are important is that it's really, really dense, dense with character names, dense with plot lines. Uh, it doesn't spoon feed the viewer. You have to find out for yourself. You have to stick with it, learn the names, learn uh, what's happening. It might take a couple of viewings. And every season of that show took, I would say, at least three or four episodes to get um, up to speed the, the the pacing is just not for it so it's dense and it's, and it's pacing is, is kind of slow but then we get into like probably the most important thing is that it's a majority black show it's a african-american oriented african-american fronted for the most part show because it's about an inner city in the united states where the majority of the population especially the ones that are being policed are african-americans and I think that people coming off of The Sopranos and Six Feet Under and TV as a whole, um, I think it took some time. And maybe, you know, we're getting we're getting more progressive, but even even some people would say that we're, you know, not completely open to the idea of a, of a black centric show. And that's the problem with The Wire. The Wire is uh, a, a, a show that's socially and politically conscious it's well written. It's probably the best written show that you have never seen if you've never seen it. And uh, that's what Fernando and I talked about when we started talking about the podcast. We need to have something that's a commentary so that we can get not just the, the white liberals who love <laughs> the, the Wire, which I consider myself one of them, but and not just the, the African-Americans that know it's a great show. Uh, we need to get get it out there for the mainstream. And I'm hoping that having something that's a, a commentary, like a podcast to go along with just so happens that the Blu-rays came out um, this year. Um, people might be doing rewatching. People might uh, be discovering it for the first time on Blu-ray or on Amazon prime that they look, they, they're like, this is, this is so dense. This is, you know, something that I wish I could talk about my friends, talk, talk about with my friends, but it came out in 2003. So let me find somewhere to kind of like funnel that. That's what the podcast, that's why it came together. It's yeah. I understand what you're saying. It is a very dense body of work. Mm -hmm. uh, as you said before, it's the sort of show where they tell you something once and they're not going to repeat it again. Whereas yeah. other shows were sort of like, hammer home the important points three or four times and, right and they don't do flashbacks they did what they did one <laughs> flashback in the whole show and 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 any fan of the show is like come on get the fuck out of here <laughs> i also love that it's the sort of show where no one's safe and no one's going to get away clean yes mm -hmm. and we've seen many sort of key characters come in and many key characters lose and obviously game of thrones is now probably stole its crown for doing Sure. That. I think after their shocking end season one, mm -hmm. they pretty much set the tone for the f seasons which followed there. But yep. 
with the wire, it's it's so interesting because no, there's no sort of clear cut line between the forces of good and the forces of bad. Right. Um, because even while the attention switches between the the police and the drugs trade, mm-hmm. the people within the, within either side that sort of fall on again fall on either side. They're neither good nor bad. I mean, we've probably yep. got one of the most fractured leads. Yes. Going with McNulty. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, who's might be a genius detective, but he's also ticking off his superiors every chance he can get. Every chance. And a drunk. And a drunk to, to boot, yeah. <laughs> um, but within, as you said, within, this is a predominantly black show. Absolutely. But at the same time, it's not doing being so because it feels that it has to sort of meet the social norm. And this was something that annoyed me about Girls, is that Girls got criticized for being a predominantly white show. So Lena Dunham's response was to write herself in a conservative black boyfriend for the first sure. episode of season two. And sure. it just, he just stood out. I was right. glad when he left because he was the most irritating character going. Absolutely. She, uh, did, she did it with a kind of, like, she did it with, um, honestly, I, I agree. I think she kind of did it with kind of a spite uh, about it um oh i don't have a black character in the show well how do you like this how do you like this token conservative black black man yeah but the problem with dunham again is the fact that she basically blew her load for the first season right and she's yeah. been sort of riding off the laurels of where she came from with obviously from the mumblecore scene with tiny furniture being her debut which mm-hmm. obviously led to girls being commissioned right. and right. now she's sort of still trying to live up this reputation but as the season's gone on, you can tell the material is certainly becoming thinner, and her character in particular, you just you're forced to spend time with this person that you have no interest in. Right. It really says something when you're more interested in the side characters than the main character you're supposed to be supporting. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And again, this was something I never found with with the wire. I have to confess, I'm only on season four, mm-hmm. um, but with the wire, it's interesting the fact that unlike other shows, which would stay within a certain area, with each season that's gone on, you get a new area of the city unlocked. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that you say that. That's almost like a video game. Yes, you get a new area <laughs> of the city unlocked. Absolutely. So the, fir- the, first, the first season was very much about the drug game, and the second season was about the porch. The third season was about reform and kind of the politics. The fourth season is about the inner city schools. And then the fifth season is about um, more about the politics, but also kind of a, a, a um, media and, and uh, uh, kind of police procedure. It's interesting. You say that it's almost like you unlock the bridge to get to the other Island in GTA. You're absolutely right. And, it, and the, each bit just sort of adds to the story. Mm-hmm. So it's nice that you get these, these chunks. It's sort of like, okay, you've, you've handled this part of the story. Here, have this bit to add onto your experience. Right. Right. They, are, they are, they're kind of like bolt-ons to, to, your, to your story. And the first season I was kind of here, miss, it, it was sort of introducing a lot of characters. And yeah. again, with the wire, like Breaking Bad, is that this is a show about small moves and big payoffs. Yes. And I really, once we got into season two, I was just absolutely hooked. And season three, where mm-hmm. we got uh, New Hamsterdam, I believe mm-hmm. it is. Hamsterdam, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love it. Uh, where they basically set up a legal area for the for the drugs trade mm-hmm. and it was just this idea, the idea of exploring that what if we had this area where they could go and ply the trade and it would keep the rest of the city free of the, the drugs mm-hmm. trade because it's all been this one area 
Right, because uh, that's where that's where murder comes from, really. If they were, you know, the, the show really is that mouthpiece for David Simon and Ed Burns and all of their cohorts, the, you know, all these filmmakers that came together to make that show. That show is very much, you know, uh, in a way, the anti-network uh, um, television drama. It's, um, you know, it's kind of the anti-homicide almost. Yeah. Because what it's doing is really trying to inject socio-political commentary into something that feels familiar and yeah by the time you get to season three and that we're, we're about to start that on on all the pieces matter we're about to start reviewing that and both fernando and i are so excited because it is the most prescient and the most of the time uh, season right now, as far as American concerns go, for uh, Ferguson, um, the things that were going on in Baltimore, um, the, the upheaval that we're having about um, drug policy in uh, inner city police departments, especially, and uh, and uh, police corruption, uh, police abuse, um, all of those things are kind of connected in season three of The Wire, and it came out what in two thousand five or two thousand six. Another two two of the other things I really love about the show. The first one being that there's a scene in this. It's just really a background character in this woman. She's washing her steps, and the gangs are sort of closing in. Uh-huh. And there's one episode, and you see a for sale sign, right? In a window. And I just love this living environment they're creating. And the other thing I love about the show is that we've got the gay black stick-up man Omar, mm-hmm. who when they created this character, they they weren't sure if it was going to take off. And now they constantly find that they got all these gangsters who have like loved this gay sticker man. They, and he is easily the most scariest guy in the whole show. Yeah, he's um, not a. That's the other thing about it. You brought it up earlier about how there's no good or bad people. He's really, you know, even though he's a mythical Robin Hood figure, he is written um, not good or bad. I mean, if you see it m- many times, he's he's using obviously he's he's arm arm stick up. You know, uh, sticking up people with with a gun in their face, uh, but also at certain points he's selling drugs um, to to make ends meet, and uh, you know other things that wouldn't be exactly uh, okay. But it's good that they they add a character like that, in my opinion, because if if he was all together Robin Hoodie, if he was all together that that mythical hero, it just would really feel out of place in the show. Yeah, and again, he's a character that's happy to go about his business and it's only after <laughs> yeah. his love is killed that he basically the the sort of local drug trading cares his wrath really yeah so mean. uh it was certainly an interesting character and it's just little characters like him or if you look at bubbles and his sort of battle to get clean and bubbles is fantastic bubbles will make you cry <laughs> you're you're in season four so you let me know how you feel at the end of season five i want to know did you squirt some tears you tell me <laughs> cool <laughs> just to obviously wrap up the, the subjects of TV I mean what sort of shows are holding your interest at the moment then if you've obviously done The Wire and you've obviously done Breaking Bad I'm assuming yeah Breaking Bad's fantastic Breaking Bad is like it's um you know it is too too plot driven um drama the way that The Wire is to kind of character oriented plotting or character oriented drama um 
the Breaking Bad's fantastic. I, I really like uh, Game of Thrones quite a bit. Um, it it uh, it it has some missteps here and there, but uh, I think overall, I mean the the entertainment value of being able to escape to that kind of universe is just it's fantastic. Um, I just finished watching documentary now, which has been on uh, IFC. Um, that Bill Hader, Fred Armisen, kind of uh, a parody of uh, documentaries, well-known documentaries, and the documentary style, yeah. which I think is probably one of the most biting and, and one of the best produced um, pieces of, of satire that I've seen um, in a long time. Um, it's it's hard, man. It's it, it's really hard because I ha- like I you know just to, to um, mirror my my podcast. I have a lot of interests and I try to like inject some video games into my life and it's becoming less and less possible. Um, I try to watch movies. I try to, you know, revisit movies and whatever, especially for, you know, doing podcasts like this. It just becomes less and less time, man. Every, every day I wish I had like, you know, I wish I had 40 hours instead of 24 hours a day. It's just impossible, impossible to do everything I want to do. I'm trying to read more too. In 2015, I've, been reading a lot more than I did uh, last year, and that's kind of what I want to be doing more than anything. There's so many good books that uh, I'm reading. Wonder Boys right now, and it's 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 it, it's one of my favorite movies, and it's just enriching that movie even even further. Yeah, Shaman needs Shaman's certainly an underrated author. Um, yeah, obviously, I think Wonder Boys in particular is is probably his most underrated book. I mean, it ha- obviously had the film which. It, like his book is really underrated. It's uh, mm-hmm. featured a fantastic performance by Michael Douglas oh, and Tobey Maguire, um, as well as an, a sort of pre-Iron Man Robert Downey <laughs> Jr. Yep, I love him in that. He is he is great in that movie. That's cool. But I think you just you said it perfectly. I mean, the problem is now whenever you have any show, you have to sort of decide about three or four episodes in, unless it's all like a, Ex- a streaming exactly. show, exactly. Uh, whether you're going to stick with it or not. Exactly. It's that's that's what the predicament is with with Netflix. Netflix will bring up, you know, Narcos and these new shows that are coming out. And I'm like, man, I really want to find the time to watch them. Oh, it's, you know, 13 hours. You know, they don't they don't even have commercials. So it's not like a 40 or 45 minute show. It's it's a 60 minute show or whatever. It's a lot. It's a lot to commit to, man. It makes you feel any better. I still haven't watched Orange is the New Black yet. There you go. So, <laughs> there you, it does make me feel better. That's a great, that is a great show, man. That is a great show. So people tell me, that's in House of Cards. Everyone's like, oh, you've uh-huh. not seen House of Cards? It's like, no, I'm re-watching Buffy. I'm watching these <laughs> other shows. I mean, there's only so much time. And you, you, as I said, you've got to choose what your poison's yeah, going to be. And yeah, for the too. moment, I'm in the space where I just want to watch Nurse Jackie and Shipping Wars. There you go. Um, <laughs> You know, I want to see how Mark's going to shift this hot tub. I want to see how Jerob can lose a spanner in his engine. These, yeah. These are the these are the questions I'm more concerned myself with at yeah. the moment, rather than uh, female prison driver. I will eventually get around to it. So you will, you will, and then at that point you'll be like, I want to watch more of more reality television instead. I think. <laughs> It's easier. It's easier to to digest that type of morsel. I think. Like my my biggest thing recently has been watching Family Feud with my girlfriend. We'll watch like hours. They have these hour blocks, you know, on um, Game Show Network here in the states, and it's just like one, two, three, four, five hours of 
Family Feud, and I'm telling you, that's our Sundays because it's just so fucking good to watch something like that that's easily digestible. Oh, certainly. Sundays is my reality TV day. You know, it's yeah. Sundays it's it's Total Diva Night. That's all it is. <laughs> that is my guilty pleasure in life, and I'm not ashamed to admit that. <laughs> that's a it. good show. Oh yeah. Uh, I think what I need is just like that that episode, to live really in that uh, Twilight Zone episode where. It's just myself at the end of the universe, and it's just finally have the time to to get my shows done. Yep. But it would probably want... be like the moment my glasses break, and it'd be like, no, there was finally time. That's exactly what I'm saying, man. I was going to say, it's like, you're gonna, your glasses are going to break, or you're going to like lose your hearing or your sight. <laughs> <laughs> Something horrible is going to happen. You're like, well, this is my eternity. That's why I keep saying. My mom's like, oh, you're going to ruin your eyesight just watching movies all day. But I'm thinking, what a way to go. Yeah. <laughs> I think every cinephile kind of wants to have that end. Like you've watched so much that your eyes have just given out. Yeah, it's it's that or crushed by your watch pile. (laughs) Oh man, we all have that. So uh, yeah, obviously, uh, to get back on our track because obviously we have got films to discuss this evening. Oh, is that what we're doing today? Okay, as much fun as it is. I mean, as I said, we should just just do an episode. We'll just hang out and just. Shoot the uh, shoot the breeze on uh, on things. We'll just have people give us subjects to discuss. But Love it. the uh, first of our sub first of our films this evening, we're obviously going to look at the highly controversial 1971 Ken Russell film, The Devils, mm-hmm. um, set in 17th century Fla- France. Father Aubin Grandier seeks to protect the city of Loudun from the corrupt establishment of Cardinal Richelieu. Um, hysteria occurs within the city when he is accused of witchcraft by a sexually repressed nun. Mm-hmm. Unsurprisingly, this is a film which has gone through a number of different cuts. To date, the un- the uncensored cut is still uh, being held by Warner Brothers US, who refused to release it in its full cut, meaning that the longest cut you can get is about 111 minutes compared to the 114 minutes of the so-called director's cup um a film i was originally stumbled into should we say i attended a screening on the history of horror um season which was being hosted by one of my critiquing mentors mark mode and again i entered the devils not realizing what i was going into i certainly didn't realize until after the fact that i'd actually seen the un- mythical uncut version um the version we're obviously going to discuss tonight is unfortunately the 111-minute version, which is available currently through BFI. The film itself is certainly an interesting film, and certainly interesting to it, not the sort of film, especially with the controversy which surrounds it, the sort of film that you'd expect, but it's a film which is both shocking as it is visually stunning. But I just want to obviously just get your opening thoughts on this one, Greg. What's, uh, what is it about The Devils which obviously holds your interest? You know, I I love movies more than anything that can come to you with a... It's, you know, it's a complex movie, but it's really simple, too. It's really simple to follow, and it organically unfolds. We were talking about Breaking Bad earlier. Breaking Bad feels like it organically unfolds. You can tell that this leads to this leads to this. And I like movies that have that type of simplicity. Like a lot of people dig on esoteric shit or they dig on on movies that twist and turn and kind of leave you flabbergasted at the end. I, I, I like my fair share of those, too. 
but give me a movie like like Jaws or or even this that if you just take the controversy out of it, I mean it, it it's dealing with weighty subjects, but it is such a a, simpl- a simple movie without being simplistic, and it's um it's so enjoyable to see how characters, especially Vanessa Redgrave's character, how she affects the plot, how Grandier, uh, Oliver Reed's character, kind of is a reactionary, and how they deal with this. Because really, I mean, the movie, both of these movies tonight, and I think this will be probably reiterated by me, if not both of us, is the the perversion of spiritualism, the perversion of Catholicism, or uh, of faith, whatever, religion. The perversion of it, and in this case, it's not the characters that uh, it's not Oliver Reed's character that's necessarily bringing an atheistic um, view to the movie that the the um, that the movie is making its POV or whatever. But everything around him is perverse. Um, Vanessa Redgrave is perverse with jealousy and sexual lust and attraction. Though the world is perverse, everything outside of those wonderful walls of Loudun is perverse, including Louis XIII's um, uh, government and Cardinal Richelieu. Just this perversity of power and politics. And... um, yeah, when you can take something that weighty and make it kind of an entertaining, simple movie, that's that's what I love. I saw this movie like for the first time, maybe two or three years ago, and it be it was because someone wrote an article about it, and I was like, man, I love Oliver Reed. Oh my god, look at that fucking amazing facial hair he has. I need to see this movie, and I watched it with my girlfriend, and it blew me away. It blew me away from from the first time I watched it. Yeah. And as I read about it, I read um, the uh, the book about it that I was it David Krauss, Daniel Krauss. Well, this, um, well this, the two books that it's based on, we got obviously The Devil's Ludan, which is by Aldous Huxley, and uh-huh. The Devil's yeah. by John Whitting. Yes. Uh, which is obviously what the screenplay's uh, based on. I mean, Ken Russell here was also not only on producing direction duties, but he also did the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film coming out a couple of years after he'd really converted to Catholicism. Right. Uh, Catholicism. There, there we go. go. <laughs> that's, um, that's, and, and, and I think that's really apparent in the movie. You know, That's why I say that it's not an, an atheist movie, whereas the one we're going to be talking about later might be. Um, this movie really does have faith. It just has a – it doesn't stand for corruption of faith. It does not stand for people using faith uh, as a power grab or to, to manipulate people. Yeah. yeah, And again, this is something that's missed out by its critics because they take the fact that we here we have at the center, we have essentially crazed nuns. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have these scenes, and we have the much-discussed Rape of Christ scene, where right. we have this group of frenzied nuns, who are many of who are naked and just in this stage of sexual hysteria, right. and they take down a Jesus on the crucifix and uh-huh. proceed to sexually molest this statue. Elwood, I need you to say this slower and kind of, you know, can you can you do a little deeper voice? Just do it a little snunky. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Which, don't which, make. Don't, I was going to say, you know, make it more sexy. You know, take your time with it. Turn me on with this. You know, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Please. whatever really works for you. I mean, it, I still remember <laughs> critics like 
referring to these scenes, and when we got the scene where the sister... Um, oh, the uh, 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 Vanessa Redgrave's character? Well, we have Vanessa Redgrave's character, and she's fantasizing about uh, Oliver Reed's... Uh-huh. Urban Grandier, and yeah. she's... Yeah. She's, and, right? Or Je- Jean. She fantasizes him, and she transposes him so that he becomes yeah. Jesus right. on the crucifix. And it become, turns it into this eroticized scene where she's there licking the wound of Christ yes. for engaging in in sex with Christ who's in her vision has taken the form of Grandier and all uh-huh. the time she's there digging her crucifix in and clutching her rosary bleeds so her hands yep. are bleeding and forming yep. these almost like stigmata like marks on her hands yep. um, and I remember critics going oh this is clearly Russell here having these Catholic teenage masturbatory fantasies put them on screen and it's not that, and he's not, no. he's not presenting it in this way where he's doing it for the sake of the appeasing the art house crowd. Right. He's getting across this idea of this sister who's become sexually obsessed with, right. with, with a priest that, by all accounts, both are supposed to have taken their sort of vow of chastity. And right. at this point, obviously, we've got to, in a historical context, that many of the nuns in the convent will have been daughters that couldn't be married off right. and was as such forced into this life of uh, servitude. Right. They're stuck in, they're stuck in living in here. Uh, they do have, I think we could talk about how this movie injects humanity, um, humanity being uh, sinful, you know, um, urban grandier has this humanity, um, that's, uh, vanity and, and, uh, and lust and everything, but they're his sins, but at least he's human. Same thing for these women. These women are, are forced really to be nuns, including sister Jean. And, uh, I, I think that what's interesting is that at the point where they become hysterical and they're running around and the rape of Christ and they're all naked and everything, uh, you know, it's it's repression. It's it's venting repression. It might be even the the, the power of suggestion. Um, someone telling you that the uh, the devil is uh, living through you and making uh, uh, making you com- uh, uh, do actions. Uh, maybe that gives them a free reign to kind of you know expel some of this repression that they've been dealing with. I don't blame them. It's fascinating. I mean, just obviously Grandier as a character. Yeah. As you said before, he is, while he's obviously by all accounts supposed to be the priest, and he's really the guardian of the city since the governor died. Right. He's the one that's sort of keeping the city together. He refuses to have the walls torn down, right. uh, which obviously Cardinal uh, Richel's trying to influence uh, Louis the Louis the Thirteenth, right? Louis the Third, on to uh, try to get him to tear down these walls because they're right. sort of fearing that there's going to be this, some sort of protestant uprising that's going to throw the sort of country into turmoil that's a big part of it man that's a big part of it that that in this little microcosm of ludon that it feels like you know the 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 myths or, or maybe the stories we hear about rome how they would take over a culture and kind of infuse that culture into them and kind of show a little bit of religious tolerance which is not completely true obviously how they treated the the catholics but um when it comes to ludon i mean it, 
you have a, a governor that dies, and of course, uh, uh, um, Grandier is is taking over that kind of political stance. But as a as a Catholic, and it seems like there is quite a large um, Protestant community in Loudun, it's bygones uh, uh, bygones be bygones. You know, he he starts off the I think the first time we see Grandier, he's saying that the war is done. You know, Catholics don't need to be fighting anymore. This is it you know there's there's peace here so we'll show some religious tolerance in these walls in this fort and uh, as far as we know you know when we're introduced to the other side of it he might have some some enemies with Richelieu and and his uh, his um uh spies but uh Louis the 13th is going to uphold uh the old governor's kind of understanding he even says to Richelieu you can Tear down the walls of any village, any town you want. You can do whatever, but you don't touch Ludun because I respect what our word that we had with with that old yeah. uh, governor that we're going to respect their sovereignty, which is a big part of it. You know, you can't have quote unquote religious power if you're going to let any of the villages in France have sovereignty. Yeah, I, what again with uh, with Grande, He's reminds me a lot of uh, Borgia. In a way, yeah. In the yeah, fact yeah. that that here we have a priest who's not only having an affair with another priest's relative, mm-hmm. but he goes and gets married in secret, right? Um, and he's, as you said, he's very vain. There's a scene where he's when he's being put on trial and he's there having his head shaven, and he asks for a mirror. Yeah. And and to the end, he sort of has his beliefs, and he's willing to. As we see, um, I'm just going to warn ahead that we will be including spoilers from here on, that he's willing to die for his beliefs and that he believes that the only person who is going to judge him will be God himself. And to this effect, he's he's willing to allow himself to be tortured and burnt in the state because he knows he's not done anything wrong. He knows he's just merely just essentially a pawn in this game that's being played by five powers. Right. And the thing is, is, you know, uh, I I love that scene where, um, I mean, early on, we're seeing that this coincides with a a plague in Ludun. A lot of people are dying. They have that bring out your dead moment um, and they're putting them all in this pile for a major bonfire. And then the next morning you see him and his his assistant, uh, Father Mignon, uh, you know, doing doing the prayer over these dead bodies, uh, um, doing their doing their thing. And I, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but he says, you know, my sins bring me closer to God and who, only he can judge me. Um, usually that what's really interesting about this, and I mean, it, it's obvious that to anyone who, who kind of knows religious history or even knows stories, I mean, you know, uh, witch hunts, uh, Spanish Inquisition, whatever, is that the Roman Catholic Church is trying to dictate what the word of God is for Grandier, the only person that he answers to is God. So he, he's not confessing to any mortal man who might be his peer or whether he has delusions of grandeur or um, vanity. You know, he certainly does have vanity. Maybe he thinks they're all below him and that the only person above him is God. But nonetheless, you know, I, I find a lot of humanity in him. The fact that he's willing to uh, recognize and admit that he has sin. And that his sins will only bring him closer to God because God is the one that 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 made us yeah. humans. Yeah. And 
again, Grundy, you can you get the feeling, especially when he's on trial and they expose the fact that he keeps these love letters and he has right. this treatise on celibacy within the church. Right. And this idea that he's trying to change the way that the church is runs its business right. in a way. The fact that he doesn't believe in celibacy for, for priests, that it, it shouldn't affect how he performs his duties. Sure. And again, this all falls back to the, the fact that he's truly under the belief that only God himself can judge him for his actions. Right. Um, and the way he's going about his business is, is true and just. He even he even uh, brings up that the uh, there was no evidence. I, I I mean he could be putting on a uh, an act for uh, what was her name? The one that he Debrew is Debrow, the one that he ended up marrying Gemma Jones. He you know tells her that there's no uh, evidence that the apostles didn't have families. They had families. They had wives. Um, they only gave them up to follow Jesus because of like the logistics involved. You don't want little kids going with you up mountains and everything, which I it's hilarious. You know, it sounds like a, a line and whatever, but uh, there's some, probably some truth to that. There's truth that you can't, you know, these people uh, that followed Christ uh, probably, you know, during his, especially during his life, uh, they didn't live like monks. They lived like human beings. They had probably had families, you know. I love the approach that Russell is taking to this material. He's really telling it as truthfully as he can. I mean, he makes uh-huh. minor changes, such as the character Mignon, who, by right. all accounts, was actually a bit of a dittering old priest. Right. Uh, but here he's shown as being a young priest, which right. doesn't change anything to the story. It's more just an artistic choice. Right. Uh, if you have a bit of artistic license on Russell's part, but he tells the facts as, as true as were reported, really. But it was um, also that he was gay, wasn't it? Is, is that is that what we were, is that what we were told about Mignon? Was it that he was he might have had proclivities? I'm again, I'm I'm not too sure if he was gay. It's certainly not something I ever got in the film or right. anything that I've really sort of read that that he was obviously gay. Apart, I just he he was just sort of this character that was sort of led along. I mean, he went obviously right. from being this assistant sort of character right. to Grandier and and sort of ended up becoming this main sort of player who sort of brought about Grandier's sort of downfall. And even to the point where he sort of uh, ensures that Grandier doesn't even get a quick death. He sabotages the noose that the execution Uh. was going to use. Mm -hmm. He was going to strangle him on the stake. Yeah. uh, So that he has a humane death. Right. Um, Again, this just shows the faith that Grandier's people have in him. Absolutely. Um, Because, I mean, he certainly doesn't really make any bones about what he's doing he's not trying to was that a pun bones hilarious <laughs> i love it <laughs> but, i mean uh, that, yeah. again we have this sort of like this arcaneness of the, the catholic church and through this we have probably my favorite character of this and that's the witch hunter and inquisitor uh father pierre barry yeah michael gothard man i love he him. looks like peter fonda yes if yes. Peter Fonda was a witch hunter, I'm sure he'd be. Absolutely. With those glasses, man. Oh, he's great. He is great. What what I've seen, I, what was I thinking about the other day? There was a oh, life force. Okay. Him in life force. Yes. He's such a good actor, man. He's underused, and he and, and he uh, he died too young. He was 53 when he died, and he's uh, he's he's in a lot of cult classics, man. Absolutely. Yeah, he also gave us the trip. Yes. Uh, him and Jack Nicholson, which, to be honest, <laughs> you forget that Jack Nicholson was such a stoner, but 
again, he was hanging around with Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper. I mean, right. when you look at Easy Rider, just go off on a little bit of a tangent here, you have like four of the biggest drug players in the business hanging out in the same movie set because you've yeah. got, we see Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper going on a drug binge while filming Easy Rider. Right. They recruit their best friend Jack Nicholson again, really into drugs at this point. And yep. then uh, Jack Nicholson brings along with him his best friend Hunter S. Thompson. Right, yeah, yeah. Like, a man who's never met a drug he didn't <laughs> a man, like. A man of sobriety, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let alone the influence, let alone one of my own writing influences. Take what, yeah. that what you want. A straight-edge critic. <laughs> influence is probably one of the biggest drug promoters going. Right, right. Yeah, man. But Mike, Michael Gothard, as I was saying, like he, he is... He pops up, man. He pops up in everything. I, I think he was in one of the Bond movies. He was in uh, For Your Eyes Only as one of the the one of the henchmen, I think, one of the bad guys. And he's good. He's got a presence to him. Because he was in, yeah, he was in For Your Eyes For Your Eyes Only. Mm-hmm. Um, he was Lecoq, and he was also yeah. in Warlords of Atlantis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, as well as the the Free Musketeers. So, mm-hmm. he, as you said, he just pops up here, there, and everywhere. Really, you don't. Yeah. He's one of those people that you probably mistake for being someone else. In my case, and, Peter Fonda. And with, and with him, I mean, that's kind of like when when I think about um, the things that kind of tell you it's 1971. It's you know, it's it's usually the hair and the costuming and everything. He feels like like a 1971 guy in this movie. You know, he feels like an injection of 1971. You know, it's with him, it, Louis the Thirteenth, in in a, in a clever disguise, kind of through Kurt, through Ken Russell. You know, pr- the proxy for Ken Russell kind of pokes holes in uh, this idea of organized religion with the uh, with the blood of Christ in the little relic, the little relic box. Would you say it's a disguise though? He turns up on like, <laughs> on like um, a, a sedan chair. I would right, hardly think right. he's like, oh, he's hardly going to think he's excuse him for just like being a peasant, always. <laughs> right, right. But they're not thinking that he's the Majesty. Probably, I don't think so. It's so funny though. I mean, like that that whole scene. Uh, those those scenes that kind of like wrap around the you know the infamous rape of Christ scene. Mm. There's a lot of commentary in there, man. There's a lot of commentary about who's saying this is. Uh, what is happening? Who who is saying that th- these are devils in these women's bodies possessing them? Who is saying that uh, uh, Grandier has anything to do with this? Like all of those scenes. I mean, uh, between that, the the blood of Christ in the little relic box, and uh, Vanessa Redgrave kind of giving her testimony uh, while being strung up. Both of those are kind of good uh examples of of the perversion that uh that people like barre and i can't even pronounce it de de le bardement the the one that dudley sutton plays yeah. um what they bring to ludun is this this ability of of accepting at face value just bullshit just straight up bullshit and the situation really only goes from bad to worse i mean we've obviously got a nun who's accused of being possessed. When um, Father Pierre, uh, Pierre Biar sh- shows up, he sort of like cranks up the insanity to like number to ten, and yeah. like turns the whole thing into a public exorcism. <laughs> right. And he's there giving like forced administration of enemas to victims. I mean, yep. he's got his own like personal personal surgeon and alchemist. 
Yes. Um, who are like his little henchmen that they're, they're yeah. carrying them in. By the way, those dudes, I mean, they're the ones at the beginning that are trying to do their snake oil bullshit on the woman with the plague yeah. in the bedroom. Having her like sleep on or having her like be on top of an alligator or whatever or a crocodile. It's just ridiculous. They're trying to like put hornets on her and 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 try to remove this plague. It's really like I I, I understand you know the the religious undertone really is uh, interesting for someone that comes in who's who might be agnostic or atheist that that uh, that uh, Grandier comes in and says, well, you all you need to to not be infected by this plague anymore is to accept God and to accept this hurt that He's putting you through and everything. He's he's a snake oil. Uh, salesman himself but these guys are even worse they're like trying to to to, trying to sting her with hornets and have her lay on a crocodile like that's going to do anything for her well there's any number you can just like look back through the sort of history of medicine and sort of cures for things and there's any number of bizarre things and you kind of like got to decide who's worse these these two (laughs) butchers or uh right and his idea of using faith Exactly. Uh, to cure things. Exactly. But as you were saying, yeah, that that's yeah, the, in there is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we ridiculous. have the public exorcism, which unsurprisingly is the scene that got a lot of people upset uh-huh. uh, in this sort of censorship circles. And I think the problem is they watch it out of context. Yes. And they sort of like, oh, look at this scene. They're, this is blasphemous. And mm-hmm. to its credit, there are certain commentators within sort of like aspects of the Catholic Church who have commented on the film and they have watched the whole thing yeah. and have given their sort of thoughts and opinions and you can see this uh, if you get the documentary from BFI there's a fascinating documentary called Hell on Earth mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which goes into really sort of the ins and outs of the making of the devils and it's an absolutely fascinating documentary and one I would recommend watching after you've seen the film Yes, just because it covers a lot of themes and ideas that make a lot more sense if you've seen the film to begin with right. but they interview that priest in there yes that priest who's like a big fan of the of the original cut because he doesn't think that it's exploitative right he thinks that it's you know it makes sense yeah and again muscle's not doing things for shock and awe he's not right. that sort of director here he's doing things purely within context right and he's explaining things and yes he may go off on the occasional little artistic whim but right. he's not sort of throwing it so far out there that you have no sort of context. You have no understanding of the message he's trying to, to pass you. And same when you look at scenes such as public exorcism and you've got mm-hmm. everyone sort of standing around in like uh, eyes wide shut masks. Yeah. Right. And, and taking great delight in this scene. And it's really a credit to the extras they hired to play these crazed nuns. And again, this is something you see on the documentary and that they he said that we would like for some of you to shave your heads and they were like oh that would totally get me into this character and Mm -hmm. again to her credit Vanessa Redgraves didn't seem to mind these scenes at all and comments just on the pure amount of uh, Heinz vegetable soup that she was having to spit out (laughs) but I I think go ahead sorry sorry. just the only problem that they had with the scene was that where they go into the crowds they were just having girls that were getting groped by rather handsy extras yeah yeah yeah, it's absolutely. it's nice the fact that obviously the fact that Russell, while he's obviously known as being this sort of blowhard and and short fused director, that he was very protective over the girls in these scenes. And there's a scene where Grandier is with his uh, his lover at the start, and they're 
the nude for the scene. Mm -hmm. And the actress whose name I can't remember who she, she is now, but she was saying when they filmed the scene that both were in sort of bathrobes and she didn't know Reed and they were right. kind of nervous about it. And they're like, whipped off the robes on free. And of course, Reed's there in snow white underwear. Of course. But she's like f naked to the uh, five shades right. of breeze. Right. Georgina Hale, that's the, the actress. Isn't that such an Oliver Reed thing? That, like, wouldn't that just be the <laughs> Oliver Reed thing? Like, that dude just seems like he would, you know, be having like some cognac on set, smoking a cigar, and then, you know, let's go do this love scene, you know? The thing with if, Reed is that he's a true sort of outlaw. He's a, he's a man yeah. unto himself. I mean, yeah. all the time I was watching this, though, all I could think of is just his, like, lines from Gladiator and expecting Grandier to go on about being so queer giraffes. Because when he gives a performance, it stays with you. He's truly he's, a master of his domain. He's a powerhouse in this, man. Be besides Vanessa Redgrave, and I think most of the cast, in fact, um, besides Vanessa Redgrave, I think that Oliver Reed's powerfulness, just his booming voice, um, the scenes that stick out to me... Uh, his performance is just A plus all the way through. There's no point where he's just phoning it in. Um, that first scene with with her in the bed with uh, what was her character's name? Philippa, I think, or whatever. Um, she, they, you know, she tells him that she's pregnant, and just to see how quickly he he changes and he's like well this is over and it's like you know giving giving her all of these excuses and all these things that you know she's gonna have to do now your dad's gonna have to marry you off to a good man they do exist you know <laughs> as soon as she says that she's pregnant it's already in his mind like well okay this is written off you know done He's so good. He's so, so good. I also love the fact that uh, Philip Hades always got, like, pancake makeup on. Yes, I love it. And it, I love it's it. kind of like clown makeup. It's on so heavy. Uh -huh. It's so exaggerated. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and so not explained either. Like, I don't know if that's a cultural thing or, you know, a, a historical, a historically accurate thing. I, I just like that. I just accept it. I like it. I, th I, just, I thought it was just um, a historical sort of aspect. And I think this is just where... Sort of ignorance is bliss, really, not being the most historically read up person. That I can watch something like The Devils and right. take this as being sort of historical, sort of document that these things did happen mm -hmm. uh, because they're not so outlandish. They're within the grounds of believability that right. we would have people like our uh, psychotic witch hunter, that we would have obviously people like uh, Philippi who would wear this sort of heavy pancake makeup. And I would. Obviously, from what we can tell from historic uh, documents, that we did have someone like Grandier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which I'm These sure people is... exist because humans exist, you know? People yeah. don't think about that. Just obviously, I uh, want to talk in a little bit about about the uh, violence, some of the controversial scenes in it, because we obviously talked about the rape of Christ scene. Uh, another scene that was cut at the end was Sister Janine, uh, here, as we said, played by Vanessa Redgraves, which makes seem all the more surprising is shown um, masturbating with the charred bone of Grandier right. and the final scene. Now this is actually cut out of the cut that's there but we see her being given the bone Right, in the, one that, see her in the one that we watched, right, yeah exactly, exactly. Um, Sort of more hinted at that <laughs> this is what she plans to do It's uh, whereas obviously the, the full cut is you do see the scene Right. And it's a femur, too. So, like, the... I guess it's a femur. Um, it has that kind of bulbous end 
which would be, you know, where the joint is. So the way that it is charred and broken, it does look similar to a man's part. Yes. <laughs> Just for me. Sorry, yeah, did I, I throw I, you I, off? I'm you want to I would, I, if you want to uh, emphasize that point, feel free. <laughs> Don't make me the weirdo. Don't make me the way. (laughs) As I said, I was just just the fact that she was planning to do things with the bone. I mean, this is up there with the Exorcist crucifix masturbation scene. Yes, right, right, right. There seems to be this history whenever we have capitalism on film, uh, Mm -hmm. certainly where it's been shown in its more extreme form, that it's always, there always seems to be the scene where unlikely object is used as an object of masturbation. Right. Uh, Obviously, we've had the aforementioned Exorcist scene, which wasn't cut. Bizarrely, even though it's certainly less subtle and more grotesque yeah. than the scene we have here in The Devils. Yeah. And I, again, this really falls down to Warner Brothers US and the fact that they flat out refuse to remove, to sort of release this restored cut. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which is really frustrating. And the BFI, under the license that they have for the film, can only issue the cut that uh, Warner Brothers have, have approved. And this is, as I said, this is only Warner Brothers US. Warner Brothers UK are more than happy to release it. Right. So, right. what we essentially need to get this cut released would be to have someone who's in favour with Warner Brothers to sort of pull some strings and get this happening. And again, this is where people are sort of falling back to Christopher Nolan, yeah. who I don't know if he has any interest in the Devils, but they're hoping that he will pull some strings. But we certainly have a number of key players within the critical community. People, as I said, like Mark Mode, as well as mm-hmm. director Alex Cross, who are certainly working towards trying to get this sort of sure. release. And I feel at the moment that Commode, who's been sort of battling this, really, I would say, the last sort of 10 years, yeah. is sort of getting to the point where he's finding it kind of hopeless. He's sort of feels he's exhausted all his options but it's it's so difficult like i know that we're we're so i know that we're so similar in our love of the film and and cinephiles as, as a whole and it's very difficult to explain it culturally because i hear about like you know britain in the in the 70s especially around uh this point and and how hard um censorship might have changed in a conservative way um i'm I'm using conservative in in the American meaning. I know you guys have a different meaning for conservative, right? No, we, we've got financial conservative. You got fi- conservative as in your as in in the viewpoint. We also have the political party, which right. again, she is the same thing. Um, their viewpoints are very very similar. As right. you mentioned already, but I think we're the only country to have a, something such as a video nasty scandal. Exactly. Um, again, a fascinating case, just purely because of the people involved. Obviously, when you've got such people who are again perverting religion mm-hmm. and using it as their driving force, when we right. have the head of the uh, Metropolitan Police, the self-proclaimed God's cop, <laughs> yeah, who believed he was on a mission from God to stop these films being released, we had yeah. Mary Whitehouse as well as James Furman, who was the head of the BBFC, who. Uh-huh went on his own personal crusade telling us what we can and couldn't see right. uh, because potentially a child could be in the room despite the fact the film was rated 18. Yeah, right. Trust us to, uh, to obviously watch this and again this will be in the fallout of cases such as the Jamie Bulger case which saw Child's Play Free being rated a video nasty for Jesus. the longest period because they felt that these two children were influenced by this film. Right. Um, I don't... It's... 
it's this thing. Like someone did mention, I think I read somewhere, maybe on a forum somewhere, like why are they that this pressed not to release the uncut version of the devils nowadays it's it's not a well-known movie it's not on a lot of people's radars and if they released it uncut on home video or blu-ray or whatever i don't think that there would be a large audience for it this person said that and i was thinking about it i was like yeah that makes sense but as soon as something like that comes out uncut and then the people nowadays get a whiff of it, let the, the religious right here in the U.S. or whatever, they are the ones that would cause the stink. And then Warner Brothers would have to backtrack a bit. Yeah. But even though it's an old movie, you know, uh, from 71, and it wouldn't have more than a niche audience, I still think that, like, it probably would uh, get some some down-home southern uh, reverend up in arms and call this the, you know, the work of the devil. You know, I, I, I don't think that it's, that would be beyond possibility. Yeah. I feel very much we're going to be in the case that until we have a really sort of a change in the guard, really, at Warner Brothers US, that yeah. we are not going to see an uncut version of the devils. I know that they've even gone on record to felt, say that they felt they would be besmirching the memory of the director. Uh, by releasing it when Russell was himself the one trying to get this film released right, right and he right. was going on and doing Q&A's with this film yeah. um, again you have to I mentioned my surprise I mean I had no idea at this point in my in my education who Ken Russell was I had no yeah. idea what this film was going into it right um, I hadn't I hadn't seen like that's the other thing like you don't put together who is known for what whether it's seeing Tommy as a kid or whatever I it, Ken Russell didn't mean anything to me. So when I saw The Devils and it kind of opens up, we talked about a little bit about the, the visualness of this movie, how, how striking it is, um, which I want to talk a little bit more about. But he is a director. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing off of this one movie, which uh, I, many people consider his best movie, Oliver Reed's too, um, that off of this, you really get his wicked sense of humor. You get his... You know, his belief in faith, you get a lot of Ken Russell in this movie. You get him as an auteur, you get him as a director in it. Yeah. And it's often surprising that we have these movies of highly religious context, uh-huh. and the directors are certainly of a religious background. Right. Yet the the, the certain religious censorship groups feel that, that they're in some way being disrespected, that it's blasphemous. Right. Um, right. Same thing happened with Dogma. Kevin right. Smith, um, again, comes from a background of Catholicism. And uh-huh. he wrote Dogma as his interpretation of religion. Right. That this is how he saw the Catholic faith and what he had obviously been taught in Sunday school. And that's right. where Dogma came from. But obviously there, there was a number of Christian groups, and many radical Christian groups who issued death threats and <clears> basically <throat> meant that Miramax wouldn't release it. It had to go through film four. Exactly. Uh, to get Dogma released, and it meant it went from being essentially his second film. He had essentially planned to do it after Clerks. Right. Uh, if you watch at the end of Clerks, he was in Silent Bob we would return in Dogma, but mm-hmm. it would actually take another two movies before they came back in Dogma. Right. People just don't. They don't, uh, especially uh, uh, MPAA, um, BBFC, and 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 religious groups. They don't really look and listen to content. If they looked and listened to content, we wouldn't have the trouble with the devils. We wouldn't have the trouble with dogma. We wouldn't have the trouble with Life of Brian. Yeah. All three of those movies are are really 
uh, strongly faithful. They are about the human ability to question organized institutions. But they really don't say anything about uh, 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 having faith or being spiritual. They're actually pro-spirituality. They are about not accepting organized religion as a whole. They are about kind of being progressive about attitudes, especially towards uh, women, minorities, and so on and so forth. Those movies, if they, if they even for a second looked at what they are saying with their, you know, veiled parody or comedy, especially Life of Brian, which I think is probably one of the smartest films, uh, the smartest uh, pieces of parody and, and satire that I've seen. Uh, if they listened and saw that content and thought about how this really did have a positive point of view for spirituality, they wouldn't be railed against it. But as soon as they see anyone uh, dressed and looking like Christ, or they see a crucifix on the set, or they see someone saying something against um, a, a, a typical Catholic order, then it get, everyone gets antsy. Yeah. Again, it's, I just go back to Dogma. It's what I really love about Dogma, the opening scene where they introduce the buddy Christ. Because mm-hmm. Jesus was an upper, not there to give you the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. But, yeah, as I said before, I don't feel that until we get some change in the guard happening at Warner Brothers US, uh, we're going to see this. It certainly was the case of the BBFC, where The Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, didn't get released in the UK until 1999. Right. Um, again, it was about 2001, when Evil Dead finally got its full-on-cut release. And Are you serious? I did not know it was that late. Really? Yeah, Mark Mode's responsible for screwing that one up. Oh, um, basically, wow. he was he was doing a, um, uh, a show called Desire and Diss, I think it was. He certainly mentioned it on his first book. And he's like, one of his things he wanted to read was the cuts from Evil Dead, because uh-huh. he finds it one of the funniest things ever. And he did this whole thing where he was like, read it out as like a little stand-up piece. And uh, the BBFC sort of like took note of this and then went and added further cuts to it. Oh my god! Uh, so yeah, cheers to that, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm glad yeah. that you bring. I, I'm glad that you bring him up because he is, you know, he is a cornerstone critic too. You know, he might have, <sighs> he might have screwed that up, but he also got a lot of these things reseen, right? I mean, the yeah. Devils really wouldn't have the lifespan of uh, the, the Exorcist. I think that the the um, the fervent fandom that we kind of saw with the uh, the extended or the director's cut of uh, of The Exorcist when it came back out was really thanks to him. I I love that documentary that he uh, put together. Yeah, I mean, Kamau has wrote the definitive book on The Exorcist mm-hmm. BFI Guide, um, right. as he affectionately knows everything that you want you didn't want to know about The Exorcist, but Mark Kamau's going to tell you anyway. Right. <laughs> um, he was one of the, as I said before, he's one of my inspirational mentors when it comes to critics, uh, himself and Kim Newman, who uh-huh. did uh, essentially the essential tome on uh, horror cinema called Nightmare Movies. Nice. And these were the guys that so introduced me. Commode, however, sort of, as he's got more into Radio 4, sort of, sort of shuffles around more in his sort of slippers and gets angry occasionally <laughs> at Sex and City too. He's, a, he's not the same level jacket wearing hipster. Uh, yeah. Used to be. Yeah. He's, he's becoming the cr- the crotchety old man, right? He's. I mean, he's sort of settled down. I mean, you read his um, his his second book, and he's they're complaining about uh, how film about films being projected, and he goes to see the screening, and uh, 
and it it's not fully on the screen and this whole process he has to go through of arguing it so you feel he's become sort of the old man of critic criticism <laughs> but uh he, he occasionally still has his moments but uh oh man that entourage review was amazing did you did you hear that? I, this is the thing. I since he's gone to Radio Four, I don't really listen to him anymore. I occasionally, like if he's doing something like the Hell on Earth documentary, yeah. Or if he's doing the documentary he did for the Alien Saga, where yeah. again he gave that amazing metaphor for the chessboard for sequence being that this is birth because birth is always violent and bloody. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And Absolutely. that's I was like, <laughs> you win. On that. Yeah. I've yeah. Good. <laughs> good up for you. Right on. Um, yeah man no he his his uh his review of entourage is probably my my favorite crotchety old man review like that i've that i've heard in a long time and i've and i've heard prometheus reviews so <laughs> you know that it goes pretty deep yeah i like prometheus but you know prometheus look prometheus is a good movie it looks good but you have to admit now I'm not going to say admit that it's that it's got its flaws. I'm going to say you have to admit it's got its detractors. <laughs> the problem with Prometheus is it tries to ask too many big questions in mm-hmm. too short a runtime. I agree. Um, I feel that when we get Prometheus two, uh, hopefully uh, it balances itself out. But... <laughs> it'll be cleared up. It'll make a little more sense. If it if you like if you like all the answers, it'd be, it'd be like the second half of the book. It's all like, oh, there there we go. Yeah, we're back on track. We know yeah. what's going on now. Bring me, bring me Prometheus three and four. I'm ready. <laughs> but yeah, no. back to the devils. There, I mean, you Absolutely. just wanted to obviously talk about the visual style. I mean, Absolutely. let's not forget this has got one of my favorite uh, shots in film. I mean, this is up there with SS Girls uh, Nazi Pope, where we have <laughs> the Ku Klux Klan of the Catholic Church. Yes, and they're in really starched hats as well. Uh huh. Yeah, those things are not moving. Yeah, you have to get like a pretty heavy wind to get those moving. You're mm. right. Um, I gotta say, not only is it you know shot well and it's directed well, but man, Derek Jarman's production design is superb. Like I know it's pine wood. I know it's you know a set, uh, Ludun's um, walls. You know it's fortress walls and everything. But there's nothing more evocative of a place that has all of these all of these issues unfolding inside it but everything seems so enclosed and locked there and and um those those walls just seem like they're gonna come down on you i love when they're when they're pulling those those walls down like pulling down the fortress walls um uh baron de labardemont i keep it's such a long name anyway that dude um pulling down the walls and everything uh the it's just it's audacious the production design of it the angles and and how evocative they are um they don't seem real they certainly seem abstract but they something that adds to it is just you know it's something it's something so evocative and and strange um knowing that it's on a set obviously you can tell that it's on a set it's almost like seeing you know um new york city streets in um eyes wide shut or something like that or seinfeld obviously you're seeing you know a back a back lot but man there's just something so um the artifice the artifice is the thing that just looks so evocative and, and strange and wonderful to me. I also love the fact the 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 the, the chapel. I would say the the room where 
Mm-hmm. Obviously, the mm-hmm. sister has her vision uh, right. of Grandier. And I just love how it's white, the white tiling, and you compare that to the pitch black cathedral we also yeah. see. And it's, uh, it's such a, a visually stunning film uh, to watch. I mean, before, prior to coming on, I mean, I obviously watched it properly through one time, and then before we obviously came on to record. I just wanted to listen to the language of it and not uh-huh. get distracted by the visuals, so I had it on in the background as I was doing other things and just listening to the dialogue. And that is mm-hmm. just, it's a, just such a complete film. It is. Um, it is. It's, it's got the length. You know, it, what's intimidating to this, especially the time period, is that maybe you expect it to be a little more Shakespearean. Um, if you're a fan of Deadwood, maybe you think that it's going to be dense language-wise. Yeah. But it really isn't. It feels very, um, uh, you know, it feels concise to the to the points that the characters are making. Um, there is some colorful, flowery language in there, especially from Oliver Reed. But it, it's easily, easily followable. You know, it's the thing that I said about simplicity. It's easy to follow people's motivations and, and what this person's beef with the other one is and all that stuff. Oh, it's, it's really well written. Certainly. I mean, Russell doesn't, where this is a problem we have with many period period pieces, is that they get so caught up in the language. Yeah. But this, again, is the problem I have with so many Shakespearean adaptations. Is that they get so caught up in the language and trying yeah. to portray it as this highbrow piece when... Let's face it, Shakespeare was a man of the people. I mean, you only have to like look at Romeo and Juliet and Again, this is when I was how I really got into Shakespeare is that it's all about how you put it into your own sort of context. And so like mm-hmm. when we were like discussing looking at Romeo and Juliet in school, and you when you get past the the love story which sort of overshadows the whole thing and everyone assumes it's about, but really it's still this gangland war. You've got these two yeah. warring families that just basically want to kick seven shades out of each other and you think, <laughs> Why have I not read this earlier? This is right. fantastic. Right. Um and again Russell's sort of like goes this is my period but i don't need to be full of flowery language and all this distraction and i this is, was a really a shortcoming of when you look at uh as sophia coppola's uh, marie antoinette i see so distracted with with her backgrounds and how it all looked and let alone the fact it was just basically porn for fat people mm, gotcha um which was great for myself <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm not towering people. I'm just admitting to my own sins here. Um, and <laughs> you were, you were a man who's brought closer to God by your sins, and that's I, fine. I know what I want. <laughs> you know, I'm a man who's like couldn't really fall that film because he was just too busy being distracted by cake. Um, but yeah, you obviously go into this film and you think just the look of the film, and then and obviously what the film's known for. You think this is going to be really heavy and hard to follow and. Longer yeah. than it is because it's only really just an hour and forty minutes, really. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like that to me. Too, yeah. it doesn't feel like a. It, it, yeah, I think that 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 was the comment the first time after we watched it mm. that it doesn't feel like it was you know a, a slow go. Yeah. Um, you know, you talk about the audio. Like I, I wanted to say, like the other thing about the production design. Um, was the um, those kind of wheels that they used for crucifixion um, that they would leave like these towering like wheels that they would leave people up on outside of the city of Ludon, and uh, that's evocative too. I wanted to add to um, to my comments about the fortress walls. As soon as you go out, this almost you know um, uh, this illusion, you know this illusion of space, uh, kind of 
you as you look out over the plains, you're seeing these these wheels used for crucif- crucifying people, and there's something eerie about just the the road up to Ludun. Is the, this is the this is the world outside those walls? Mm. Um, but when you were talking about audio, uh, not only you know you have this great this great dialogue, but you also have this really abstract experimental score that goes along with kind of the weird fucked up moments that you're going to see these people go through when they're being exercised or going hysterical and everything. I mean, it's a, it's a choppy movie when it gets to editing um, those, those scenes and the score is as choppy. It, it's very uh, discordant and, uh, and it makes you feel kind of, uh, kind of uh, off kilter. Yeah, I mean, the score perfectly captures sort of the hysteria and madness within the walls of the city. Um, and it perfectly suits it, but you, at the same time, you know that no one's going to get a number one record out of this. <laughs> yeah, this is not a radio hit. Yeah, this is not <laughs> been a radio hit. Yeah. I just imagine them trying to sell it as a single. And now for the hit movie, The Devils. <laughs> as we said already, I mean, there's, this is a highly controversial film, and there's two reviews that I just really wish they put on the box, and that's uh, the one review by Judith Crisp, um, who called it a grand fiesta for sadists and perverts. Um, <laughs> yes. where Derek Malcolm calls it a very bad film indeed. And I think if you're going to put anything on your box, put that on it. Yes, that would sell it. You if know. that was in video stores in the '90s, that would be that. That shit would be taken out, man. Yeah. That would be the first thing people would get. I mean, well, it was obviously, it came out and was kind of forgotten by most, yeah. uh, which again makes it only the more confusing why we, we're still battling over this unedited cut. Um, yeah. But we flash forward to 2002, we got around 100 filmmakers and critics, and it's wildly cited as being one of the 10 most important films ever made. Absolutely. Um, again, once again, being championed by the likes of Commode and Alex Cox. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex Cross over here obviously did Movie Drone, but I think in the States probably better off known for being his work as a director, obviously directing the likes of Repo Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, his 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 place in cult cinema is is very similar. I don't I don't um, I don't see a, it's not surprising that he comes to the uh, the aid of of Ken Russell's movie like this because I think Alex Cox's um, sense of humor and his pedigree is very similar to Russell's. Um, I wanted to say, man, like, you know, as far as it's, it's like if we could get more people like that to, to champion a movie like this, I feel like, you know, it's, 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 it's always in a, a vacuum that we hear about these movies and how amazing they are. And, you know, two of my, my favorite types of cinema, my two favorite phases um, are like the 1970s as far as American new wave films go and especially British movies around this time too. And this is really, this is a a milestone. It's a milestone of both. And I think that that's something that needs to be remembered for too. People talk about when they talk about 70s cinema here, they always talk about, you know, taxi driver and the Coppola movies and, uh, you know, Clute and all of these movies that were really kind of, uh, getting back to character drama 
and this is a movie that that does that too and it's it's um also got an outsider's perspective outside of you know kind of a an american um uh an american voice yeah. it has something that truly feels european and and feels historical and it's just a well-made fucking movie right across the board. There's nothing about it that I would say, you know, it was just too slow or this was a big flaw. You know, it really is a fucking masterpiece. Yeah. I mean, have you got any other sort of final thoughts on this one before we obviously wrap this one up? I love it. I love it all together. I mean, Oliver Reed, Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, my, my crush on Vanessa Redgrave I haven't seen a lot of her movies, but my crush from of Vanessa Redgrave started probably seeing her in Mission Impossible, and she's such a beautiful woman in that movie, and I I just fell in love with her her acting, and she makes this little gesture in there when she's talking about uh, feels like a comfortable warm blanket. She kind of like makes this little this little scrunched up nose, and I was in love with her from then on. So I was always looking for something that she was in, and um, this movie, she's virtuo- virtuoso. She's a virtuoso in. Um, she goes from being something that you feel is going to be that mother superior, that very strict mother superior to probably the most perverse thing I've seen in, in a movie outside of maybe possession, you know, she's just superbly in line with what that character is. She knows that character in and out. And then of course, Oliver Reed, you know, what what do you have to say about him? He's, he's, he's great. And probably 99% of his movies. I mean, my only sort of final thoughts on this is really just that this film, uh, like so many others, proves that for true master director's work, that his most controversial work will always be his best work. Uh, You can look at any master director, and again, this will ring true and true again. We look at Kubrick, and it's a clockwork orange. Uh, We look at Spielberg's Schindler's List. It's always the most controversial work that will obviously be the director's best, and it's sometimes what we require from our directors that they push themselves to the extremes as we see here with russell this for myself is probably his greatest work and one that even in its edited form is still worth tracking down and yeah, watching um, mm-hmm. but um further viewing uh, if you like the devils where would you go next with it where would i go next with the devils yeah what, oh. would, you, what would you say is a good companion piece uh, to this Ooh. i know it's a such a unique film it's hard to pair with uh with with many other things really it is unless you're using this as a segue to the next movie we're talking about <laughs> this no this movie is very difficult i think it is um it's very difficult when i think about it yeah it's a movie that's very unique and in and of itself i i think exorcist is a very good companion piece if you're looking for a, an american movie dealing with very similar issues of kind of the perversity of religion um, yeah, that would probably be the, the closest one in my mind. As I said, uh, the bag's empty on this one. Is, uh, it's sort of, it stands on its own. It's a true, truly original piece. Um, and certainly, uh, certainly, I would say if you only watch one Kevin Russell movie, this will be the one. And again, it only sort of further reinforces why both Vanessa Redgrave and Oliver Reed are the talents that we view them as. Absolutely. Um, on that note, we're just going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll be looking at our second film this evening, Seven. Why haven't you seen Jaws? I've seen Finding Nemo. That's close enough, right? Why haven't you seen The Usual Suspects? Because I already know who Kaiser Soze is. I can't believe you haven't seen Videodrome. What? 
Has anyone seen Videodrome? Okay, okay, okay. How about I start a podcast where someone will introduce me to one of these great movies I've never seen before, and in return, I'll have them watch a superhero movie, film-wise. The Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. Find it on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Still joining me in the studio today is Greg. Hello, sir. Um, in the first half, we obviously discussed Ken Russell's The Devils. Um, and now we're going to flash forward to 1995. Uh, still really staying on the theme of capitalism in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, as we look at the breakout film for David Fincher. Uh, it's a psychological thriller, uh, Seven. Starring both Kevin Spacey uh, as well as Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. Here we have a neo-noir crime psychological thriller in which a killer named John Doe is going around the city of seemingly eternal rain of killing people according to the sins, in a way Mm -hmm. racking up his seven deadly sins or cardinal sins. Now it's down to the short-tempered and idealistic uh, detective David Mills, played here by Brad Pitt, to team up with the soon-to-be-retiring uh, Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman, uh, two cops that are very much at the opposite end of the spectrum to each other, and they're forced to work together to solve this case so that Vema will break them uh, before they get to the end of it. It's a film which, despite coming back in 1995, has remained relevant ever since, uh, even while Fincher has gone on to produce bigger and more probably more well-known films uh, such as Social Network and Fight Club, this remains a key film within his filmography, so much the fact that it's even overshadows the likes of the much underrated Alien 3. Um, but what is it that you like about this one, Greg? You know, I started off telling you that, you know, The Devils is the is the new obsession. Well, Seven is, is the old obsession. It's the movie that in a lot of ways... Um, it kind of welcomes me into my teens. So in in 1995 when it came out, I was uh, I was 12 years old. So I wasn't nearly uh, I was I was near to being a, a teen, but I wasn't a teen yet. And um, I remember seeing the trailers for this. In fact, no, it started with a, a poster. It started with a very evocative poster. Um, I don't know if it's the one that's uh, on a lot of the VHS cassettes or um, anything, but that poster was in my local movie theater, which was a small movie theater near my house. And uh, that's all I saw every time. My dad and I would go see a movie every Friday. Um, That was our thing. Uh, Right after school, we'd go to the movies together. And that, 
I saw that poster for like months, and it was like it was kind of so comic booky and so kind of scary at that point. Um, just the the typeface used, and they had these little like um, these little tallies, those little you know slip marks that uh, that they use for the for the seven uh, the the kind of tallies that they use on the show on, on the movie. So. Just saw this poster over and over and over again, and and of course in a in a kid's mind you start thinking about well what's that movie about and oh it's it's listing sins so maybe it's about sins, and um, I I kind of got a bunch of my friends who actually I don't think any of them knew about this movie they didn't even they they probably walked past that poster a bunch of times didn't look at it didn't think about it um, I think only a couple of them knew who Morgan Freeman was and I, I maybe no one knew who Brad Pitt was but we went to see this movie um there was a group of us so we were all like sixth or seventh grade here in the states and um so a bunch of 12 year olds going to see seven um and my dad was the chaperone and uh i remember my dad my dad was my dad's the best part of this story because um so we went to go see it and it's hard to get, you know, a bunch of 12 year olds to sit and watch uh, 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 Winnie the Pooh, much less, <laughs> much less a, a deep psychological thriller where you need to pay attention. But as the movie's going on, I'm noticing that the only people who are paying attention is me and my friend Brandon. And um, so we're the ones that are really into it. But the rest of them, like maybe four other people, just making a fool, making so much noise in this theater, um, just really being obnoxious. Yeah. And my dad's sitting way in the back of the theater. Theater, and he's he could hear us and all this shit so when we get out of the movie theater my dad like once we took we we said goodbye to my friends and everything my dad was like i am never taking you all to the theater again that was embarrassing but I, what what's more important about my dad in this story is that my dad's reaction to this movie <laughs> coming out of it was you know what i kind of agree with the serial killer <laughs> <laughs> It's like you know, John Doe has this um, has this morality, right? And he has this kind of uh, statement about no one who was killed was innocent. All of them committed sins. And my my dad, you know, he's he's not gonna run out there and start killing people. But he he agree he agreed with him. He was like, well, he he does make a point. <laughs> He does make a point. Um, the other, the other thing about this movie, and probably the, the most important thing for this movie for me, is that the I couldn't sleep in my bed by myself for two weeks after seeing this. Um, I had to sleep in my dad's bed because I was so fucking like the the uh, stimulus, the auditory and visual stimulus, and especially the sloth murder when that guy comes back to life. Yeah. So fucking freaked me out that I had nightmares every night. And I'm, I'm not even joking for two weeks. It was at least two weeks. Um, I had that in me. I, I thought about that to to a point that the only time that I got over it was when I finally forgot like you know I'd be focused on other things and forgot about it and finally maybe 2 weeks later I was able to you know put it out of my head but then of course it's coming out on VHS and when I saw it again when I saw it in like some catalog uh, we used to like order from like Columbia House or something um and of course you know VHSs were not cheap they weren't you know 20 bucks or whatever they were they were a pricey effort if you were going to buy uh, a VHS back then 
um, I, I got it in my head that I needed to get this movie and watch it because I needed to overcome my fear. And I got to tell you, man, those, those, uh, whatever that 96, when it came out, probably the year later or whatever, um, maybe between 96 and 98, I had these kind of therapy sessions watching <laughs> seven by myself or watching them with friends or watching it with friends to kind of get over this fear. And I got to tell you, man, I, since that moment, that's the most, that's the most prevalent moment of being scared at a movie that I can think of outside of maybe the exorcist when I was like deep in my teens, but no movie really has ever scared me the way that seven did. And I saw it at a time when just like my innocence was going out the window and it's just, it, it really did put me off, you know, this kind of darkness, this grittiness, this world of just, just the things that are hanging in the air would try to kill you. And just the atmosphere was trying to kill you. Um, that's what this movie is to me. So this obsession with Seven was really like overcoming my fears. Yeah. <laughs> it was something else. I mean, it's a little surprise really that a film as visual as Seven would be directed by someone like Fincher really sure. the part of a wave of directors who had made their mark making commercials and uh, music videos right. that had made the leap over into doing mainstream cinema uh, right. there was really the the three key sort of figures of this movement really was Spike Jones, obviously David Fincher and Michel Gondry right. uh, Gondry at the time had obviously done Human Nature uh, Jones had done being John Malkovich, but that that would obviously be more towards, towards the end of 1999. So Fincher, in many ways, was sort of the the director who bridged that gap between mm-hmm. those directors who were doing really impressive sort of commercials and uh, music videos and using sure. it as a medium to sort of do a number of interesting projects that, while they were obviously waiting for a chance to do someone on a larger canvas. Mm-hmm. And really, Finch does he really makes the most of this opportunity here. I mean, at this point he had to come off alien free. He was very dismayed with the whole filmmaking industry. Um, and it was only perchance that he was sent the, the, the incorrect script for seven. He was actually sent this because at this point through the sort of production process, they had cut out the original ending. I'm just going to warn ahead. Now we are going to be doing spoilers. So the ending here where we have the head in the box, um, that had been removed, but the script that Fincher had been sent was the script which had that head in the box ending, and it right. caught his interest and made him want to sign on to do this film. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it it really gave him a chance to prove that Alien Free wasn't all his fault; it was more the studio meddling, and that here was a director with talent that was certainly worth noting. At the same time, we've it serves as a cautionary tale because it's written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who again this was his debut screenplay. He wrote it while he was going back and forth on the commute to Tower Records at the time. And unlike Fincher, whose career sort of went off into the stratosphere, uh, Kevin Walker's sort of career, he, it sort of went from here to sort of rock bottom. He did 8mm after that. Again, a very underrated film. And from then he did Sleepy Hollow, right. uh, which would again suffer at the stu- hands of the studio. And since then he's been sort of doing bits and pieces for TV, but nothing of this level. Right. Um, but as you said, this is a film which grabs you on its visual style, its sound, uh, the soundtrack provided by Howard Shaw, suddenly adding to it. And uh-huh. it's really from the first death that we have here. Yes. 
for the whole film, we're very much playing catch up. We're always two steps behind John Doe. Right. So we're always witnessing the aftermath. We're never seeing like John Doe setting up a kill or mm-hmm. committing the, uh, a kill, which is what you would expect being a thriller. Yeah. Um, but we're always like catching the aftermath. So obviously our first death, we've got the sin of gluttony. Right. In which case, it's probably one of the most effective ones. And here we have the obese man who was forced to eat himself to death, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I love just how the scene's set up. I mean, it's pouring with rain. We've got... Perfect. You know, you said neo-noir. That's the thing yeah. that we need to go back to is that the noir part of it, whether it's the those dark edges, you know, at the at the edge of the frame that everything is just going to fall out into. Mm. Like, the, the content, too. I mean, you got the rain... You got these detectives, you know, everything just, you know, it has that 1940s, you know, uh, atmosphere to it. And I love how Fincher manages to introduce these directors. We know instantly from their first introduction what they're all about. We have the intro with Somerset and Mm -hmm. he's investigating um, a homicide. And he's there asking these what seemingly like random questions like, what did the kids see? Right. And... The other officers around him are like, they're just tired of his procedure. They're like, they can't wait for him to retire. Right. And right. at the same he's time... He's the we, procedural detective. He's the yeah. he's the Edgar Allan Poe detective. And you can tell that he's sort of become numb to this world around him. And that right. he uses the metronome to sort of drown out the arguments of his neighbors next door. Uh-huh. He mm-hmm. tries to find sanctuary where he can. And there's a scene in the original screenplay where he's shown in the intro where he's looking to buy this house in the countryside and he cuts right. out uh, the wallpaper um, a rose and he keeps it in his wallet and it's like this reminder of, of this little sanctuary that he's like right. putting aside for himself right. I love that, I love that um, I really do and obviously when we meet Mills he's hot tempered I mean he's ambitious I mean mm-hmm. he, there he's asking questions uh, of the cop and he's like how do you know he's dead? Do you check for a pulse? And he's like, the cop's like, he's been standing his own piss and shit for five hours. I'm sure right. if he was alive, he would have stood up. Right, right. Um, because, you know, this is a scene where people don't have time. It's very much New York in a different rapper. It yeah. is. It's a weird place too, man. Like, it's a weird limbo because obviously what he, what Walker is using as the influence is is really kind of uh, New York and the crack epidemic. He's using New York in the 80s and 90s. But there's also an element of really spread out Los Angeles, um, especially towards the end of the movie. Um, you're seeing kind of, you know, the, the buildings floating away and kind of this wide open desert landscape. Um, it's a weird place that they don't really name. Um, these cops have badges that look like uh, L.A. badges, um, but they also deal in atmospheres and in places that are extremely urban and, and um, tall building, like skyscrapers um, kind of coming down on you. So it is a weird place to to be in this kind of unchecked limbo. Yeah. All we know for sure about this place is that it rains a lot and there's a lot of distress. There are people in the streets getting beat to death and murdered over, uh, you know, uh, a pocket watch or their glasses. You know, everything is happening. Every type of violent crime is happening in these streets. There's even like little subtle details. Uh, I believe it's Somerset and Neath- He's talking about someone who got mugged and that the yeah, the mugger yeah. stabs them in the eyes. Right. 
and again these 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 lovely little touches and this is really an ambitious picture for Fincher to be making. The fact that so much is shot in pretty much pitch darkness. We have yes. very alternate sort of light sources from torches or mm-hmm. sort of dark lights that illuminate these scenes. And we never have these problems where we can't see what's going on, which many other directors, when they're trying to use darkness, we always fall into this trap of, well, I can't see what's going on. Yes, exactly. it's a lot of mood, but... I can't exactly. see what I'm supposed to be looking at. But. Have you seen uh, Alien vs. Predator uh, Requiem? Yes. The darkest goddamn movie ever made. <laughs> <laughs> can't see anything. Uh, no, that's absolutely true. I, like As I'm watching this movie, I'm a big fan of film noir. Like It's one of my favorite film movements, and it's also like one of my favorite periods of cinema. And uh, this movie, like what it's playing with is is a, a type of uh, darkness, both in its content. The the cinematography by Darius Kanji is like, I, I think that's another thing that attracted me when I first saw this as a, as a preteen. Um, I was like, man, this is so visually stunning. This is like a, a dark yeah. pulp rag or, or comic book that you pull open and it, the what you what you are allowed to see is what you're meant to see. Your everything else in the frame is just supposed to be this encroaching darkness that is just going to envelop you at any moment. Oh, certainly, it's it's such a visually fascinating film to watch as well. I mean, this would if I was like to name films which were sort of like led to me obviously be developing an interest in studying film. Well, I've obviously said before that Clockwork Orange was the film where I realized there was more going on. This would certainly be those first indications because when I first watched this, this was a butchered cut that was shown on the BBC. And the BBC, for whatever reason, they like to think that they can edit people's movies. Um, (laughs) So there were scenes cut out of this one that I made some fun viewing when I got to see them on the uh, VHS cut. What was was cut out, do you remember? Uh, Yes, we didn't uh, get... We didn't get to see the fat man's penis. Uh-huh. We didn't gotcha. get to see the SMM blade, which oh, is yeah. used for lust. <laughs> gotcha. um, that was apparently deemed too offensive for the uh, sensibilities <laughs> of the BBC. Um, there was lots of little minor cuts like like that, but it was still you could still watch it and enjoy it. If you didn't know better, you didn't mm-hmm. know these things weren't there, then it, it still worked. Uh, right. which is really just a credit to Fincher's work rather than sloppy yeah. editing in the BBC. Sure. But just obviously talking about the scene of the, the fat guy's penis, um, that was actually uh, another move by Fincher, who was uh, actually in his directorial notes said, for God's sake, give him a big penis. Yeah, yeah right. I remember, I remember hearing that or reading that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the elements of, of this movie really come down to... You know, I, I like that that we're dealing with two directors that have a, a great sense of humor, but a great like auteurist hand on what they're doing. But this movie, more than a lot, like I was talking to a friend the other day, we're 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 gearing up to do a, an Alfred Hitchcock um, retrospective on Debatable, and um, we were talking about Alfred Hitchcock as kind of a, a director that you know we're you know because our, our obviously uh, what our generation is we're always looking back at his work but with fincher i grew up 
during his work. I remember seeing Alien 3 with, uh, with my mom and um, kind of being uh, infatuated with this making of that uh, was on HBO, um, the making of um, uh, Alien 3. And then by the time 7 came out, I, I, knew, I knew the director's name. I knew Fincher. And so my whole life has been um, a paralleling as I've gotten older – I've also been like right on the same wavelength and page of whatever Fincher was coming out with. I was at the perfect age to see Fight Club. I was at the perfect age, I think, um, to see uh, a Benjamin Button, even though it might not be his best movie. Um, I've seen, <laughs> One way of putting it. I'm at the perfect ages to see these movies that come out with him. So I've grown with with Fincher unlike you know someone that we always look back at like Hitchcock or Kurosawa so seeing this movie I obviously knew that he did Alien 3 but there was always kind of this feeling even if it wasn't said out loud at the at the time because this is obviously pre-internet you only get what you what you're told or what you what you read there were problems with Alien 3 and you could tell that the movie wasn't great in that cut that was released but Seven feels hungry and what Seven feels like, it feels like a hungry director trying to show off every tool he has in his um, in his toolbox. And you know what? It works on it, visually. It works on so many different levels. It works really to show how unique a person uh, Fincher is coming out of the music video realm. Because you can you can name maybe like you did at the beginning of uh, of this uh, segment. There's maybe three or four uh, music video directors that have a hand in in films and and made the transition in a way that they they absolutely know how to deal with the medium. A lot of uh, people that come from music videos to feature films they don't know how to handle pacing. They don't know how to handle a, a certain level of of content over um, spectacle. Yeah. And Fincher. Fincher comes from a, a totally different place. If you want to go back even before the music videos, being a model maker, um, this man grew up um, loving 70s American cinema. He grew up loving Chinatown and loving these movies that were, um, you know, if you look at the through line um, from these uh, uh, great, great American uh, masterpieces to what he strives for and, and often achieves with his movies – there, it's very similar. You can see how this movie borrows from Chinatown. You can see how the game borrows from Chinatown, and and this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm seeing on on, uh, on the block for Seven is this hungry filmmaker that wants to make every single one of these kills a special thing. You know, bringing Arthur Max in for production design and creating these apartments, these rooms, these crime scenes that are just so unique in and of themselves and completely memorable. Um, for anyone who's seen this movie more than once, it's easy to pull out, you know, you know immediately what the lust murder scene looks like, what the gluttony murder scene looks like. Um, the, all of these things are just elements that, that make it so visually pleasing. If you were to watch this movie without even listening to the sound, if you were able to watch this movie just visually, you just wanted to pick it apart visually, it really is an art project. It's amazing. As you said before, each of the murders stands out on its own. And even if we take away the whole murder mystery mm -hmm. of the film, 
we have this fascinating relationship between the two detective Mills and Somerset. Yeah. And this one that only gets more interesting when we introduce uh, Mills' wife Tracy here, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, uh-huh. who has been uprooted from her quiet life in the countryside to come to the city because she followed her husband. Yeah. And the young married couple and there she's ha- struggling to deal with obviously that how different this city is i mean this is the fact that the city is so morally corrupt that it's reflecting the buildings that everything's yeah. crumbling and falling yeah. apart and nothing absolutely. works absolutely i mean the fact that even the apartment that they live in they actually comment that the fact that the real estate would only bring them for like a, an hour at a time because he knew the subway was underneath <laughs> Right, exactly. That's a great little uh, gag in the movie. Um, that that these that, that yeah that she's uprooted. That they're kind of moved into a place that really is not fit for human habitation at all. And that's I mean it's a it's it's uh it's about their apartment, but it's really about the city. The city, as we've we've said already, is is just it's preying on everyone. It's just this unchecked violence. Yeah. Police are unable to control it. The city just preys upon innocence, and especially Tracy, as we find out. You know, I, I felt like for the longest time watching this movie that that Gwyneth Paltrow didn't have a lot to do, and and that's kind of a stripe that you can give towards a lot of Fincher's work that he doesn't maybe some sometimes sometimes he has really good female characters, um, but this movie in particular, the the scenes that she is in. She does a great job of filling out that character. The, even the quiet moments, like when she wakes up in the middle of the night and sees that uh, both Mills and Somerset are gone. They went to go, you know, look at the the greed murder scene or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that she has these little these little quiet moments. Everything that she's in uh, um, uh, this movie, every sequence that she's in, just like she she adds this humanity that's just kind of missing from what these detectives are dealing with every day. Oh, certainly. Um, she's really the innocence of yeah. the piece. And it's great because Paltrow knows she's the supporting character. Right. She's not the star of this, this, this film. And she's there to really provide the, the entry point for other aspects we wouldn't be able to see otherwise, such as we get to see a darker side to Somerset because right. it becomes Tracy's confidant as she's, as he, she openly admits, he's the only friend she has in the city. Right. And it's through her that we learn that Somerset had previously been in a relationship with his girlfriend who he'd forced into having an abortion. And right. it's like this, now this burden he constantly carries with him. Right. But we wouldn't, obviously, if it was just Mills and Somerset, when would those two have that conversation? Sure. You sure. would never see that side to Somerset if it wasn't for her. And she has a number of little smaller bits, uh, such as when we first introduced her in the, uh, the phone, Mills mm-hmm. is answering the phone, and she like says, oh, I thought we escaped from the country to get away from tractor pulls. <laughs> right, right, right. And it, these are like the little moments of lightness that were allowed here, and it, it's kind of fitting that, that Fincher chooses to snuff out any lightness that we have by the end so that, right. that the city finally envelops the 
only light and goodness of the film. True, true. I, um, it's this thing of what 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 is naive too, because like Brad Pitt is um, he's a great actor. You know, they, uh, people people kind of lump him in early in his career too, as being a pretty boy and everything. And I think he's gone to show that he's actually a, a fantastic actor. He has a, a very good instincts. So he's very natural, and Pitt is like. You know, he has an unenviable position because, um, which is hilarious because he's, he's envied in the movie, um, but he's got an unenviable position of being this kind of archetypal um, hotshot cop, you know, the guy that wants to be Serpico, he needs action, he doesn't want to be behind a desk, and uh, he's a good foil to Somerset, who obviously is the older man who's seen it all, and he's yeah. the smartest man in the world, yeah, smartest man in the room, whatever room he's in, but uh, Brad Pitt has this thing of, you know, what what's happening to Tracy is happening to him. You know, Somerset might have seen some horrible things working homicide all those years. Um, but Brad Pitt, you know, that moment when they see the help me in um, in fingerprints on behind the painting in the greed crime, crime scene and they got the guy taking the fingerprints and Brad Pitt leans over to Somerset and says, have you ever seen any, be honest, have you ever seen anything like this? And Somerset's like, no, I haven't. This is something that, you know, he's playing this naive guy that's seen this for the first time. And and for a, for a police movie, for a police procedural, we're seeing this type of movie for the first time. I always go back to this. This is not the type of police procedural that we were used to. This movie... We're, we're naive to this world the way that Brad Pitt's character is because this movie is kind of like a mix of uh, a thriller, a horror movie. I mean, the the subgenre that Seven like influenced, this serial killer slasher type subgenre that um, that kind I would say kind of started in the '90s with maybe Silence of the Lambs, but definitely Seven had more of an effect. I feel like at least um, aesthetically, as we moved into the late '90s and early 2000s. But Seven was it's very uh, unique mixture of of slasher and horror aspects to the regular police procedural because we're seeing how deadly the world is around them and how unrelenting it is there's really no safe place there's a a level of dread that I think was probably the fear I was having when I first saw this movie as a kid, that this dread is is unrelenting. It never lets up. It's kind of like, I would say it's kind of like True Detective season one. There's this element that the atmosphere is so encroaching on you, it makes it almost impossible to breathe. Just hearing you obviously describe it there, it just makes me want to uh, really say it's like an American Jalio. Yeah. If they're yeah, yeah. perhaps like a more sort of restrained version of what an Argento yes. or a Bava would have given us. Yeah. Uh, obviously, with those films, they went on to inspire the slasher genre. Uh-huh. And here we have a thriller where the killer, as in Science of the Lambs, is as important to the story as the detective is. Right. Um, whereas in most thrillers, it would be the killer is just giving the detectives a quest, a a goal to achieve. True, true. But here we're as invested in why John Doe is doing what he's doing, Mm -hmm. as we are Mm -hmm. the director trying to solve this case. Right. Um, 
and you can tell that just in the amount of background that they provide for John Doe, even though he doesn't get a, a name, that when we go into his apartment and you've got all the little clues and the fact he's made these little uh, display cases for each of the sins and we've yeah. got gluttony and it's just like a can of soup. Yeah. Um, and then we go to his like library and it's just his mind poured out on paper. Yeah. And I love that you're like talking about that too, because that little microcosm is just like all of those murder scenes. There's these little tableaus, these little masterpieces, these little pieces, pieces of art yeah. that we're seeing in every little place. And that, and his fucking man, the set design, the production design of his apartment is, I, I hate to say I would want to live there, but I definitely want to like visit there and just look at all that minutia, all those details. And I think the when obviously Mills is there reading, uh, sorry, when Somerset's reading the passage from his diary, yeah. he talks about uh, man on the subway just like making general conversation and how he threw up on him. Mm-hmm. And you get this idea that, that of how Doe views the world, and essentially right. he's he's insane. Um, but the, well, obviously from the way it's, it's shown is that the way insanity supposedly is, is that you see everything makes sense. Right. And in his world, he's made, he's made sense of the world. And that I think, I think that his morality, these sins. I think that his morality makes sense too. Like there's a problem with the extent that he took it to, um, again, you know, just like with the devil's a perversity of religion. In this case, it's the perversity um, in his own mind and what he chooses to to reflect his religious, his fervent religious um, uh, outlook. Yeah. But um, that perversity in him, uh, even though it's perverse, and even though he's he's uh, kind of given the yeah, the crazy stick, you know, he's just a uh, crazy. What, what does uh, Mills say later, uh, sitting around watch, uh, reading guns and ammo while sitting in your feces or whatever? Oh, uh, <laughs> he's, like... he's um, yeah, he's probably sitting around reading guns and ammo, rubbing himself in peanut butter while wearing his grandma's panties. Which sounds amazing. I gotta say, it sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, but no, I think that even uh, what what makes him okay, what makes him a great killer is not the idea that he's the hand of god or that he thinks that he's the hand of god what makes him a great killer and makes his his uh motivations more interesting than him just quote unquote being the crazy killer the crazy serial killer is that there's a morality to him that he believes as fervently in as grandier believes in uh the sovereignty of ludun you know there's a Strong characters that have strong belief systems, people can get behind, even if they are doing deadly, horrible things. Um, I think that that's what my dad meant by, you know, he had a point. John Doe had a point. I think he did. You know, we talk about what is innocence. Well, innocence really is however you want to define it. But some people would say that all of those deadly sins are deadly sins for a reason. You don't want to be. You don't want to aspire to be gluttonous or proud or wrathful or vengeful. Um, you don't want to aspire to that. Maybe some people want to aspire to be lusty. I have no problem with that. Yeah. But, but in general, those things are. You know, if you if you divorce them from the Old Testament and the Bible and and w- the thing that makes them religious, 
those values are kind of things that you should aspire not to have. You should have cardinal um, virtues. Uh, you should excel to be virtuous and not be a sinner. He has a point. He has a point. Even if his point is perverse, it's per- perverted by his outlook on things. The other advantage Doe has uh, over many of his sort of serial killer counterparts is that he's able to justify every one of his victims. Right. And he's like, oh, gluttony. Oh, a man's so fat that if you saw him walking down the street, you'd po- point him out to your friends so they could join you in mocking him. Right. And it's like the disease-spreading whore, the lawyer, I bet you were all thanking me for that one. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's sort of like uh, the, the the pimp who's obviously lo- uh, sloth. Uh-huh, And right. he's, he's spent months collecting That's so gruesome, these, like, man. these God, jars yeah. of God knows what, and... Obviously, uh-huh. in that scene, we also get to see the human chameleon, John C. McGinty, which yes. is really exciting. I love him. I love him in that. He, that's a, that's another guy that you know I always like noticed in the background of maybe an Oliver Stone film or whatever, <laughs> and he always like stuck in my head. I was like, that dude's awesome. I love him in this. I think it was only after Scrubs that I started noticing him everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but he's pinpointed. Just, just one thing I wanted to stare throw out there, just a little film theory for you is that here we obviously see Joe uh, Doe as being someone who's sick and who's in the wrong but is it just the case of because of the world he's in if you look at the character of Rorschach in uh, The Watchmen uh who's essentially John Doe but we view him as being a hero he's actually one of my favorite literary characters yeah he's essentially John Doe but just in a different context you hit the nail on the head exactly. I think that John Doe is the type of <laughs> quote-unquote hero that this world births. If you're going to get a message of apathy and anonymity and you're in, a, in the faceless masses, how do you stick out? Well, maybe I need to do a project that I'll be remembered for. And all of a sudden, he's, you know, a level above. No, this is the world that births a, a type of person like John Doe. And I think, you know, it's really, it's always interesting to put into context when a movie comes out. Because you come out in the 90s. And the 90s are, you know, grunge music, industrial music. I mean, Trent Reznor is part of the score on this movie. Um, this movie is so uh, connected with the parallel time that it came out that I think that that's what it does too. You got Gen Xers that really are a a part of an apathetic world. You know, you're not asking your, your neighbor for to, to, to borrow some sugar. You have less and less interaction with the uh, faceless masses. You just want to get from this point to this point, if you're living in a city, um, and you just want to go about your own life, it's a very selfish outlook. It's kind of the thing that that's kind of been turned on its head by Generation Y and the millennials afterwards, because the millennials are they're they're as apathetic, they're as antisocial. I mean, I'm speaking in generalisms, but there's an element to them that's more social than this mid '90s Gen X type thing. Yeah, the. Uh... Generation wuss, as Frank is nice likes to call them. <laughs> Surely. Um, but I love the... It's interesting, obviously, uh, talking about Doe in this respect, because there's a moment where, essentially, Fincher turns to film 180 and basically gives us the bed and just, like... It gives the bed and just, like, 
seems to revel in how clever he is. Because there's the right. line where John Doe goes, what I've uh, created will be puzzled over and fought over for years to come. Right. And Seven has become that. We're still, yeah. years from now, still discussing these murders, still puzzling over it, and still loving the twist at the end, how it all comes together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's when, you know, when a movie, like, transcends its twist, I think that's when you have a great movie. If you just talk about a movie because of its twist, then it's probably not a great movie. It might have a good ending, but it doesn't mean that the movie really has much to offer otherwise. But when you can go to this movie, and for the longest time, like, my obsession with this movie were the murders or, or John Doe's apartment or um, that action scene in, in the apartment building when he's chasing John Doe. Um, all of these things, these elements, uh, obviously, these are, these are things that, um, that uh, the, the action sequences, the type of um, plot developments, these are all things that, are, that come you know, stock and barrel with, with um, detective cinema or police procedurals. But there was, uh, there's always something rich about that world that the rest of the movie was so superb. And when people talk about the twist ending of Seven, I always think, I always have to remind myself, oh yeah, there's a twist ending. I always forget about that because I'm always thinking about the rest of the movie. Yeah. Like it's such a, a rich world to live in that it's like the, the twist is just the cherry on top for me. Um, to see John Doe's full masterpiece come to fruition and and see how calculating it was. Like when you stand back from it, you're like, man, he he got his cake and ate it too. It was every little thing that he set in motion, um, he knew how to do. He, he knew that it was going to pay off this way or that way. So it really is a masterpiece of a movie depicting a masterpiece of a madman. You know what I mean? I just want to ask, do you have a favorite scene here? Favorite scene. It's so hard with this. Man. I mean, if you, want, so if you want, I would go first on this one. Please. My Please. favorite scene in this whole film is the scene where Somerset goes to the library. And yes. he's like, he berates the security guards of mm-hmm. the fact that they're surrounded by all these books and they choose to spend all night playing poker. Right. And their response is to play Bog. And <laughs> yeah. we have this wonderful scene where it's really a sort of counterpart of the detective style of investigation yeah. where Mills is going over the case files is going over crime scene photography and some sets trying to get into the mind of Doe. He's looking up things like Chaucer. He's researching the deadly sins and Mm -hmm. he's creating this sort of like cheat sheet for Mills. Yeah. Um, And he's there printing off obviously uh, things such as Paradise Lost and um, Dante's Inferno Mm -hmm. and trying to give it as the guide. And he trying he's in a way you can see he's trying to educate Mills, but Mills is, sort of unable to make the sleep. He's not well read enough. I mean, he's there well, with like the key notes trying to cheat yeah. his way through it at one point. Hey man, uh, give the point, give the man points just for Cliff's notes. At least he, you know, looked that up at, as, as much, you know, even but, though um, he thinks Dante Alighieri is a, is a gay man. <laughs> oh God. It's, it's, it's like Dante, Dante, <laughs> fucking poetry writing faggot. <laughs> I uh, I I think that that's another element that I forgot to bring up. That not only was I dealing with the fears of this movie. This movie, like as I wanted to think about it as a thirteen-year-old or whatever, uh, this movie really was another literary movie that was 
so it's like the like what I said about the wire. It's a it's a movie that that brings to it a a literary tradition. Um, and in this case, it's the influences. Uh, Andrew Kevin Walker's using this um, this religious tradition. You know the 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 books of the religious tradition. But uh, the seven deadly sins were used in so many um, works of art. You know throughout the the plague and all the way through the 1600s, 1700s. And uh, you know this movie got me interested in reading uh, the Canterbury Tales and the Divine Comedy um, later in college Paradise Lost. I think that I was even interested in the theological teachings of Thomas Aquinas because of a movie like this. Yeah, And um, you know I think it came along at a certain time too because um, I think I was questioning a lot about um, my my family wasn't religious but there was this interest that I get um, not baptized. Uh, I go through communion and, and, uh, what's the word? Um, man, what's the, what's the thing that you do in your teens? Um, confirmed. My mom wanted me to get confirmed. And, uh, in the is it Episcopalian faith, I'm Episcopalian, just like uh, many, uh, many of you Brits are, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I've been baptized and everything, but my mom, we were never religious, but my mom wanted me to get confirmed. And when I'm being told that she, that I need to blah, 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 do this, of course, I'm going to rebel, you know, I'm turning, I'm becoming a teenager. So I started thinking, you know, maybe I need to be a little more open to theology. It's so great. It's so fucking great to kind of like have a movie that has a life after it, after it because of what it's um what it's showing you there's there's further reading it's like the the book club for the tv show lost you know <laughs> you could read those books and those books would enrich the way that uh uh lost's plot unfolded and the mysteries within lost because you know you would be able to to read fahrenheit 450 and you would be able to get more out of its inclusion in the TV show. But anyway, yeah, this movie is definitely that for me. It's, you know, I love that you bring up that that sequence. It's one of the best montages in in any movie that I've seen. I love that library sequence. I, that's that's hard to compete with, man. That might be mine as well, but like I said, the the action scene in J- John Doe's apartment building is um finally kind of like we saw we saw action from from Fincher in Alien 3 uh using those really really wide anamorphic lenses going down those hallways those corridors and that shit's amazing in and of itself but um i love this chase i love how it's broken up i love how um you know he's hesitating to go down uh, a stairwell and we're kind of following brad pitt as he's kind of like covering his his corners and then you know almost shooting a kid as he busts into a room and kind of just that whole chase and how you know it, it, it ends with them running across this traffic and brad pitt actually broke his fucking hand uh slipping on a on a car and it ends the sequence ends where it really could have ended the movie john doe could have killed mills right there and uh it has an even more a bigger effect later in the movie when you find out that uh how much power john doe does hold over him um yeah that sequence might be my number two anything else that uh we haven't sort of gone over here i think the only thing i can think of is the fact that the studios decided that they were going to attempt to make a sequel um in which somerset had gained psychic power so it's kind of like uh, <laughs> it's kind of like frank in uh, millennium in that he can get these psychic visions but 
thankfully, it hasn't happened yet. Thank God. Um, I always like, you know, I like a, a movie that has a, um, a motto. Um, when I think about the ending, it's not so much the head in the box, but Brad Pitt being hauled away in the car at the end and, and uh, uh, Somerset quoting Ernest Hemingway, uh, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Um, that's, that's a motto. That's a, that's a quote that, that sticks, sticks with someone, especially when they're going into their teenage years and you're dealing with a, a world. If you're trying to try to make sense of the world and, you're, and you think that there's a lot of apathy out there, there's a lot of bullshit, whether it's sociopolitical bullshit or otherwise, that motto is really telling. Because, yes, there is hope. There's, there is a world that's worth fighting for. Is it a fine place, though? For a lot of people, it isn't. I would say the majority of people have horrible lives, but there's always a hope of transcending that, I think. And that's that's the motto that I came away from. I, I love that quote. It's amazing. For the viewing, uh, where else do you go from seven? Good question. Um, there are a number of, uh, of knockoffs. We didn't, we didn't talk about... We didn't simply talk about the, the open titles or end titles. The open titles being so Stan Brackage, so uh, you know, um, scratched up film mm. and and so abstract, like uh, like an avant garde uh, project. Um, whenever I see the opening to Seven now, I think about the opening that was almost stolen, hands down, in Suicide Kings. Um, uh, was it? Um, damn, what is it? It's. Um, uh, Brett Ratner's uh, Red Dragon, um, the style of of that opening, and then the ending, the ending credits going backwards, uh, uh, going scrolling down instead of up. Both of those kind of tell you what type of movie this is that you're you're gonna see. Um, so yeah, when I think about where do you go from here, I think like all the ones that kind of stole the aesthetic of seven which includes so many movies i mean suicide kings in an aesthetic way not in a story way there was this movie i god i forget it It kind of uh end of days almost is with uh, schwarzenegger kind of steals from this with its religious overtones um but yeah where do you go from this with kind of its content or its meaning it's uh, it's another one just like the devils that's so unique with the way that it's executed, I'm like, what's a good companion piece for it? I don't know. On a lighter side of things, I would go with Argento's Deep Red. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Just for the sheer look, and I always feel that Fincher, if he had been, if he had made his break earlier, he'd certainly be part of the cinema de look movement that yeah. obviously gave us the likes of Besson. So a film yeah. like Diva, I would see as a bit nice companion piece, even if there are opposite ends of the spectrum both are sort of going for that visual style it's cinema as a visual medium mm-hmm. i mean emphasizing those points and obviously as we mentioned before watchman's the film i perforate just using rorschach as our entry point and right. going on for there and people such as the comedian who mm-hmm. all have their own way of dealing with this sort of twisted world that they're forced to live in yeah. Just to obviously come back to the uh, the title cre- credits, uh, Kevin Spacey actually asked for his name to be added at the end um, and not in the main 
main title draw. Because he wanted brutal. people to know, to keep guessing, when he turns up and confesses to murder, that uh, whether he was actually John Doe or not. It's great, too, because, man, um, I, you know, it's not until after the fact you realize how, how much work Spacey had done, in, uh, especially in, like, the late 80s, early 90s, and being an in, uh, independent milestone like uh, Swimming with Sharks. But as, a, as an actor, um, he was still, you know, not very well known. And that's kind of, that kind of helped the anonymity yeah. of the killer in this, absolutely. Oh, and he certainly really broke out i mean he did this he did usual suspects and yeah uh-huh. it was sort of like he just exploded onto the scene yeah. sort of like you didn't know he was one man but you certainly knew where he was afterwards absolutely uh, same way that you knew that brad pitt suddenly turned a cornerstone and that's why i always when we discuss brad pitt i always talk mm-hmm. about post seven yes um mm-hmm. absolutely. the same way that DiCaprio, all he needed was just a decent director which he found with scorsese true um, very true until that point, he was just sort of like the teenage heartthrob. He did a couple of interesting movies, such as Basketball Diaries, but and uh, This Boy's Life. But he was sort of got into that teen heartthrob stage, and uh, in a way, it overshadowed the beach from being more than it could be. But yeah. once uh, Scorsese got hold of him and molded him after a couple of films, I mean, Gangs of New York was sort of a test run, and from sure. there, he sort of really brought DiCaprio into his own with films like sure. The Aviator and uh, The Departed. He's a fine he's a fine actor. It's good that you bring him up in relation with Brad Pitt because they're both people they're both people that their trajectory could have simply been pretty boy actors. Yeah, they're both I th- uh, actors I'd hear girls going on about. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I think Di- I think DiCaprio is is a fine actor. I think that sometimes he relies too much on um getting worked up and loudly screaming to mean that he's a serious actor <laughs> in some of his movies. Uh, he's great in The Aviator, though, man. He blows me away in that movie. Yeah. He's so good. Can I ask you a question? Please. The Zo- uh, Zodiac. Is this movie better than Zodiac, or is Zodiac better than this movie? Zodiac is is very overrated. This, this movie is Fincher's... I would say it's his, his masterpiece... Uh, followed very closely by Social Network. Um, Social Network didn't deserve to be as good as it was. It's a TV, <laughs> it's a TV movie of the idea that him yeah. uh, that he just makes absolute genius. Yes. Alien Free um, is my favorite of the saga. Awesome. I'm going to just go on record and say now it's it's my favorite hands down. That's awesome. Uh, I I applaud you for being smart because I got to tell you, man, I have dealt with so many, um, well, I'm going to say it, young people um, <laughs> that that are also in our our group of friends, uh, young critics and young filmmakers that that think Zodiac is probably the the best movie ever put to to um, to a digital CCD chip. Um, the the movie is good the movie is fat and it's flawed it's it's got problems it's beautiful to see when fincher plays in the serial killer um subgenre and when he plays in something that um that lets him kind of uh, roam free with uh with kind of like dark gritty um cinematography and everything i think it's a very good movie but when people compare that to seven i think that what seven always achieves that that zodiac doesn't 
is that hunger, is that um, the, the uniqueness about it that's so visually and, and auditorily pleasing. And it's just, a, it's, a, it's, like, it's like when people talk about Spielberg and they talk about uh, um, one of his later movies being the best thing he, that he did. I always think of like Duel or Jaws and how as even a young filmmaker, he was fully formed. You could see that in Alien 3. You can see that in 7 with Fincher. Fincher just, he, he had been thinking about what could put his stamp on a film. And 7 is indicative of that stamp. Whereas Zodiac is kind of a, um, like a, a faded Polaroid of that stamp. It's a good, it's still a good picture, mm. but it's not the thing that it, that it's not the subject of the picture, which is 7, I think. I think if we're looking at his catalogue, then I would say Panic Room, again, very underrated Quite in his filmography, under- is mm-hmm. essentially seven, but on a smaller yeah. scale. It's, yeah. so if we focus on one small square of this city, that could be Panic Room. There is nothing that is more um, telling about his need to control his movie than probably Panic Room. How, how automated it is, how... Um, you know, the the CGI that's utilized in that movie is one thing um, that's very connected also with Fight Club also. But um, the cinematography, everything that's so like um, uh, auteur-like and, and anal about the way those, uh, Panic Room is made. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the most typical Fincher movie. Yeah. Um, I think just one sort of final note while we're obviously talking about Seven Deadly Sins, though, and I have to ask: um, Have you seen James Dean's Seven Deadly Sins? I have, I have not, I have not, but I am aware of it. <laughs> yes, uh, James Dean, we've obviously uh, mentioned at the start of the show, and we might as well bring it full circle by talking about him now. Um, has actually done his own version of the Seven Deadly Sins, um, where each sin is interpreted by a different scene. Uh, for example, I think was it. Uh, Lust or vanity, fame. Uh-huh. Do I remember the sins now? We've just only been talking about them for the last <laughs> half an hour and a bit. Um, it's basically him surrounded by a number of attractive women, all wearing masks of James Dean. <laughs> I love it. Um, what was what was gluttony? Gluttony. I'm trying to remember because he was talking about this on the Brady Snares podcast when he was on there recently, and I believe it's food. Yeah, he's just eating food. A covetous lady. Gotcha. Gotcha. But yeah, it's, it's, you know, if you've got a spare five minutes, check it out on James Dean site. (laughs) Widen your horizons. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what this podcast is bringing to everyone. Widen your horizons. That's what I would hope we don't. I mean, I would like to thank, uh, obviously, everyone for listening to it. This has been a big old chunk of podcasting for you. Absolutely. Hope you enjoyed it, and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on uh, the show today, Greg. I mean, obviously, uh, what you got coming up in your uh, side of the podcasting world? I got a couple projects. Yeah, I, I just returned to to Debatable. Um, we took a, a little hiatus during the summer, like we usually do. So um, we just came back uh, in September, 
And um, yeah, man, we're we're setting up to do a couple projects. I got a little Alfred Hitchcock retrospective going on with uh, with uh, my friend Curtis, and that's going to be starting in October. And uh, then we're gonna, um, you know, other than that, we might be just uh, doing another my favorite films series probably early next year. And then with uh, all the pieces matter, um, Fernando and I are, are about to start uh, season three of The Wire. So yeah, if, if anyone is is watching or rewatching that show, uh, get ready. We're gonna try to do it more frequently than we have been. We've been doing it like once a month um, during we, when we did season two, but we're gonna try to do it like maybe uh, biweekly. We ho- hope to keep that schedule. Just everything gets so busy in our lives, and then things fall fall apart. Yeah. But yes, thank you so much for having me on. I had such a great time. I love talking about these movies, and you're a great person to talk to. So thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, hopefully uh, we can get you on for a future edition. I better. I better do it. I need to. <laughs> I need to find. I need to find some more movies because seriously, man, like it's. I, I, there's so many things. I I, I. 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 could. I could list out and schedule sixty episodes with you right now, just based on that list on Letterbox. I need to. I just need to do it. Yeah. I'll be your your permanent co-host. <laughs> <laughs> That's no problem. Yeah. I mean, every show will probably be about three hours long. So <laughs> true. Very true. Just to suddenly increase all our uh, episode runtimes, but yeah, cool. <laughs> Um, but if uh, people obviously want to uh, come and uh, be your fake cyber friend on the internet, where's the best place to find you? Absolutely uh, on on Twitter, probably uh, Mr. Greggles, M I S T E R G R E G G L E S, and there's links to to Debatable Pod and all the pieces matter on Twitter also, and and Facebook too. I mean, Facebook is is where we have our our um, our pages for both podcasts. We're on Tumblr. And, uh, you know, we're always looking for, for feedback. That's the thing, you know, like for, for my shows, those are shows that I'm really proud of, but like they mean nothing without having listener feedback. So give me a Mr. Greggles on Twitter. Give me feedback about the show. If you're liking it, if you think that we need to improve it, someone gave me the criticism that my musical interludes are too long. So I'm thinking of, you know, basically pulling music all, all together i'm just gonna have tones play i'm just gonna have the the soundtrack from the devils play at the beginning <laughs> of every episode some discordant harmony if that's even a, a phrase but yeah no uh mr greg was on twitter please cool. get in touch with me awesome um as always all the full details uh, can be found in the description section below so if you missed anything for that just check down there um, again, thank you very much, Greg, for coming on the show and uh, sharing your thoughts on both The Devils and Seven and a number of other things. It's been an absolute blast having you on. And uh, as I said, hopefully have you back on soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, that wraps up another edition of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase. This is Elwood Jones signing off. Remind you, as always, to keep it strange. <laughs>